raising of living standards or parent raising of living standards, it's been a difficult nut to crack. You know, how do you argue the crisis of capitalism when it appears that most Americans are doing okay? More go to college than ever before. And most times, um, uh, the younger generation does better than its parents. Uh, obviously, through all of this, uh, there were contradictions. You know, yeah, I mean, you're saying segregation, but the majority. And of course, this, there was an absolute white majority. Okay, so it became difficult. The only time the, the American left really did real well were in times of crisis, like the Great Depression, you know what I'm saying? Or like the war in, time of the war in Vietnam. But otherwise, you know, we were sidelined. We have been sidelined. Now, bring it up to the day, the left pretty much has sidelined itself uh, by becoming uh, in effect, the left wing of the Democratic Party, but we'll come back to that. But in the face of what is a flatlining and since 2008, a decline in living standards of workers and middle class people across the board, and it has occurred, with this reality, uh, the ruling class is faced with a crisis. How to keep, or how to keep the faith, or how to preserve the, the faith, uh, excuse me, <laughs> how to, how to, um, how, how to maintain legitimacy. How does the ruling class, and by ruling class, those that, control the society. We don't all control the society. A small group does. But how do they maintain their position? What must they argue in the face of declining standards of living? You know, with a younger generation which does not see a future. And on and on and on. All the stuff that we know. It has to come up with, two, with new arguments. And the two arguments, I think not the only two, but I think two of the most important arguments are identity and technology. Does that, that make sense? Right? <laughs> identity and technology. Okay, identity is a kind of a reframing of who the citizenry are, you know, uh, what is an American, uh, uh, and thus an American in 2021 is not, in terms of their identity, the same as an American in 1961. Uh, the consensus of an American was pretty much white, pretty much um, patriotic, you know, flag-waving, uh, a whole number of things 
that if you lived overseas, you would think that was an American because that's what was in the movies. You know, I'm certain of Purba and Shabata that when you thought of an American, you thought of what you saw in movies, pretty much. And anybody, you know, um, uh, you know what you if you were in South Korea, an American would be this. But now there is a rebranding, a redefinition uh, of American identity, and it's a cultural change. We call it, or they call it, being woke. You know, so. <laughs> That means that, you know, if you go back to 1961, uh, it would be outlandish to think of a movie or a commercial with two men kissing. No. You couldn't consider it, you know, or a trans person, it, you know, or for that matter, a black person. The Marlboro Man, one of the greatest commercials of the 70s, was the selling of, of Marlboro cigarettes. And the guy that sold them was known as the Marlboro Man. And he was this tough guy, a cowboy in the West, smoking a cigarette. The irony was that the, the Marlboro Man died of throat cancer. <laughs> so, but anyway, I, I mean, that was tragic, but you know, he was not a, he was not Superman. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, but, but now the image is a more diverse, pluralistic, culturally pluralistic kind of image of America. Well, I mean, without going into any depth, we know all of this has come from the elite. It did not come organically from the American population. So the elite have said, this is what America will be defined as and we will force new identities upon the American people, okay? Now, that's not to say that uh, people will, would resist all of it, but it, it, there's a difference between it coming from above, from corporate America, et cetera, and from it emerging organically from below. The, an example of it emerging organically from below was the Black Freedom Movement. And hence, you take one example, a figure like Muhammad Ali, who, who came from the people, who was championed by the people, and hence changed so much about American culture, American identity, the way white America saw itself and black America, and then of course the writings of Baldwin, the music of, of Motown, uh, a great cultural revolution from the people transformed American identity. This, 50 years later, the ruling class has seized upon this for its own purposes. You see what I'm saying? Like they make documentaries now about Muhammad Ali, whom they hated. I cannot tell you how much they hated him. And the more they hated him, 
the more he was beloved by the rest of the world. I mean, it, it was it's an unbelievable thing. And I don't think there's ever been a single human being that has been loved by so many people in the world as Muhammad Ali was. He was beloved. And he was beloved because of what he represented and who he came from and who he was beholden to. It was the black masses. It was the working people. It was those struggling for justice. And humanity loved an American who would stand up in the face of a ruthless ruling class and even say, I'm prepared to go to jail. You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying, Yvonne? Yeah. You, you feel, I mean, even if when, you, when we talk about it today, it can bring tears to your eyes almost. You know what I'm saying? It was that moving. But this from above, okay, I'm not against two men kissing, right? But I don't want the ruling class telling me I have to accept it. You know what I'm saying? You know, if two men, you, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm almost like Dave Chappelle on some of this. <laughs> but it's a difference. And then, you know, just on, on, on the gender thing, I can tell, and Dave Chappelle had this absolutely right. Mm -hmm. It's not about who you love. It's about who's telling you what you have to accept. So most black people will say that the whole LGBTQ thing is a white thing to draw attention away from the black struggle against poverty, against inequality, and so on and so I feel the same way, you know? And like Dave Chappelle was absolutely right about this. You know, a white person, let's say a white man that's a racist, been a racist all the time, <laughs> on the down low racist, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I'm. I never, I don't have a racist bone in my body type of thing, and then, but I'm gonna gentrify you out of your neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, but this, this like Dave Chappelle and this thing. He said the same guy, you know, once he was backed in the corner and didn't have much of an argument to prove that he's not a racist. Say now I'm gonna become a woman, and I got you. I. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you might you might call me a racist, but I'm gonna call you transphobic. So now we're equal. You see what I'm saying? And so it is that in a lot of ways. It's shifting the center of discourse, the center of centrality, and saying it's all the same. Everything is equivalent. You know, the long oppression of black folk and their struggle for freedom is the same as the trans movement, which just came out about three years ago. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? So it is that identity uh, argument, which has now been translated into a tra uh, translated into an argument about democracy. You know what I'm saying? So let's say that for whatever reason, let's say I'm a Sunni Muslim from West Philly. You understand? And 
just on religious grounds. I'm deep into the Holy Quran. You know what I'm saying? On religious grounds, I do not see trans as a Democrat, whatever. I don't see it like you see it. Oh, now you're a bigot. The cat said, I'm not a bigot. I just am a Muslim. But it's this canceling of what would be the organic discourse among people trying to discover truths about what a human and democratic society looks like. I don't want you at the University of California at Berkeley, of all places, telling me a poor person in on the south side of Chicago or the west side of Chicago how I should see the world. And don't tell me if I don't accept your elite narrative that I'm a bigot. I'm not going to accept that. And there's going to be a clash. But identity becomes then, for the ruling elite, a measure of democracy, a test of democracy. So they go to South Korea and totally turn that society upside down. I don't even know what's going on. I mean, if anybody's been there lately, could you explain that to me? I mean, no, I don't, I'm not calling nobody out, but I'd like to know <laughs> what the hell is going on. Why does an Asian society want so much to look like a white Western society? You know, what is that about? Okay, that's one thing. And I, I, I'm not even going to talk about South Africa right now. That mess. You see what I'm saying? When there are not boundaries, yeah, we could have interchange between the West and Africa, the West and Asia, but that doesn't mean that Africa and Asia have to bow down to the values of the West. Well, it's a problem in India. Everybody gets an education in the West, go back to India, and and denounce Indians. You're nothing but a bunch of bigots, and you ain't no good. Well, where did you come? You just got from Harvard. I mean, what you told me? <laughs> 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 oh, but, but so, okay, the other is technology. This is a huge argument, especially when you take their framing of climate, the climate crisis and climate change. Mm -hmm. Because here it, is, here it becomes a, the point, I'm not inarticulate, the, the point that they make is that the United States and the Western general is the most technologically advanced part of humanity. That all of the great problems faced by humanity, be it poverty, be it pandemics, be it climate, will be solved by our technology, by, quote, our science. Mm -hmm. We are therefore, and, and all arguments, Western arguments about democracy, ultimately turn out to be arguments about Western or white supremacy. 
you know, we're smarter than the rest of you all. Whatever you know you got from us or stole from us. And, and, and we're the smartest, and therefore we're supreme, we're superior. This argument about technology is also an argument about the great capitalist reset. The great capitalist reset will be woke capitalism armed with the most advanced science and technology, uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, biophysics, uh, all, everything that can transform the human being and transform the environment and solve all of the problems of humanity. Okay? So then the, the argument would continue, well, what are you all protesting? You know, all we need is President Biden's $3.5 trillion Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill. And you say, well, what, you know, okay, I'm all right, let's say I'm down with the 3.5 trillion. What's in it? Oh, I forgot to tell you. Hidden in it. Hidden in it. This money to clean up, you know, whatever, all of the polluted sites. But why do you say that in the beginning? Right. Or did you now just put it in there? But my point is that they, they set up a, a discursive space, a set of arguments where they can't lose. Whatever the argument, they win because they can always pull a rabbit out of the hat. Oh, the 3.5 trillion. Didn't you know there was something in there to clean up the environment of North Philly? Oh, I didn't know that. Now, you know. But you see, you get my point. It's it's almost arguing in bad faith. Mm -hmm. But the idea that America and the West has the technology to solve the great problems of humanity. Now, what is absent in all of this? What is absent? Humanity. Humanity. Never in their democratic arguments do they make a case for humanity. And I'm not just saying the human. Humanity. See, they will make an argument, by they I'm talking about the ruling elite, for the human. Oh, we're defending humans and the human being. In fact, if you look at... Uh, Dave Chappelle's uh, special, comedy special, he talks about a human experience, yeah. but he does not talk about humanity. We were rapping about this last night. And that that's why he could not logically complete his argument in the comedic form. He couldn't do it. It was too much left on the table to be resolved when the, when the special was over. Mm -hmm. But never is there an argument for humanity or a all-humanity solution to the problems of humanity. Because humanity does not matter. It is the human as defined by the ruling elite of America and other Western countries. 
I want to make that argument again. I don't know that I'm making it clear enough. I don't even know if I've worked it out. But an argument for this is human is not the same as an argument that this is for humanity. Because then once you go to humanity, and this is what um, Nandathan Raju are trying to do, the argument for peace is paramount. The argument for peace. When you say humanity, the argument for the young generation, I'm not talking about some people that can read or do books or look at videos on YouTube. I'm talking about the humanity of all young people, beginning with the most dehumanized, the poor. They don't make that argument. And without a humanity argument, you cannot make a case for actual or substantive democracy. It's a lie. It's a fraud. It's to cover up something else. You see what I'm saying? You are, you make a point, but you're covering something deeper from being discussed. So I could say, I'm down with... Uh, uh, with transgender women, when I said that, you can, if you want to be trans, go and be, you know, be transgender. You know, operative or post, pre-op or post-op, or no op at all. You know what I'm saying? No drug. Maybe I'm a poor transgender woman. I can't afford an operation. You know, I did an underground, you know, cheap thing to get implants. But a so I'm down. Let's say I'm down with that. But no matter what the gender identity, the question of what is your class position, are you poor? Are you uneducated? Do you have a future as a young person? Is your psychological, your psychological issues, the result of your sexual identity or gender identity, or is it a result of your poverty? You know, we have to ask the question, you know, throughout, you know, throughout Philadelphia, I, you know, I'm North Philly, so I talk about North Philly. Is the rate of suicide among young people connected to questions of sexual and gender identity, or is it connected to having thrown in the towel on life? Because I know with my education or no education, <clears throat> I'll never have a job. I don't have a future. I'll, I'll be poorer than my poor parents, you know, and on and on and on. This way of thinking or putting the question is a, is, a, is a discussion about humanity as such. And once the question, discussion, is about humanity as such, the question of democracy, the rule of the people, becomes a wholly different discussion. The rule of the people 
does not mean a growing gap between a billionaire class that can has the luxury to send three or four people into space for 10 minutes. <laughs> so that uh, that's what I wanted to say. I mean, I think going forward, as, as we go into this, um, you know, and this Kathy and I, we've been rapping about this, how culture and theories of culture and art uh, obscure the question of the human, of humanity, uh, and how we, let us say the free school and other people, are obligated, as, as Henry Winston would say, duty-bound to, um, to wage this ideological struggle in the name and in the interest of humanity as such. So that's what, all I wanted to say about that. Oh, go ahead, Derek. I, you know, I'm just sitting here, and I always have these equation with land and people. Not because we want to be the dominant ownership of the land, but all of the vi the vitality and the vital forces of of humanity, the core of humanity, is more bound to the land question yeah. everywhere. And if, if we are absurd from that land, and we trying to even vote for having land. The uncertainty is like breaking the, the principle of the land and the people, having the people to thrive not off the land, they are of the land. And, and, and that's sometimes central to all of the countries. It could be more dominant than India, because India had to go, these lands have to go through some tests about should the people have rights to plots or equal amounts of land regarding space to live with or space to have space sometimes. But when it's not on the table at all, not from legislators, not from anybody that's for the people, then then it's almost blanked out of our minds that why the people are so depleted. Because the land measure is part of the measure of how a person operates, whether you agriculture or you growing things or you place where you dwell at or should we work the land or should you not let the people work the land at all? So having all of those depletions, the persons that we are faced with, their whole thing is like, we're just going to take all the land. And they don't even have the, the, the real right of, of taking this upon themselves as though they the um, God of this land or the God of any land. And, and that full meaning of whether it's Christian, whoever it is, we make us. And, and, and whether I'm going to an Islamic country or who, something about this land and poverty and being poor and one of the richest state everywhere. That's, a, that's, a, that's all for me. It's like this is, a, this is more than criminal. It is a criminality against humanity having places to dwell in, whether the apartments or whether you have, but not to not have no thought about it. That young people should be able to see the world equally divided, or if, they, if it's divided on capitalism, no one, no one's gonna win any, have anything, because it can't find itself a numeral that will equal everybody as having, you know, this lifetime partnership of our communities is faced with trying to find our union in democracy or whatever word they, they want to use, so that we're not out of this land question as the century, 21st century keeps on moving ahead. And the people just sliding steadily in the grave with not anyone really presenting 
you know, things like that. And I know that it could be it could be delegate from the United Nations, but if they shut down, shut us out from the United Nations for any such question like that, that means that they don't really want to hear, you know, what our real values, you know, like that. And I'm not want to I don't want to be the owner of all land like like that and market human beings misery of being impoverished and, and, and being and being in this pandemic, that's not like the whole um, um, ailment. It's just that this is what they have been exploiting from day one. It's you know just part of a exploitation. Whatever whatever is is equated with it's to me it's like it's a reason to exploit people even folks. Don't give them any more to live with. Just take away what life means to them. And that's what the young people wake up every day. They gotta figure out, am I gonna live? You know, am I gonna live? And I have to bring the land issue because that's my part of my form of life is that I gotta be able to address it because it's essential that we be able to nurse nurse ourselves. If we mentioned the word organic, well you can't use that unless it comes from a pile of land. You know, as the people are as people are um known better in their uh, identity of their land. Anybody else? Um, I just I just think those are all very good points, but I kind of want to bring up the um suicide thing and young people because I want to bring up the conversation of young people and you know hurting themselves and suicide. I feel like I've been through this situation with most people as self we know so enough. And I feel like, and I've addressed this to many people, and you know, people address it to them too, that life is so short. It really is. And it's sad that some people decide that, you know, it's not worth living. Because some of these problems, like you have a bad family, you have a home, you know what you solve? These problems can be solved. These small problems, you can get out of these problems if you just ask for help. And I feel like they do this sometimes over the littlest things. It might not be the littlest things, but still, these problems can be solved. And it's sad to see on the news that, you know, a teen has died because of the situation. And I feel like that some people, you know, probably at their school, probably at home, don't understand that this person is probably going through a lot. And, you know, sometimes it's good to reach out a hand. As... If as a person, no matter what you are, transgender, LGBTQ, black, white, I don't care. If you feel like you have a problem, a situation that you can't solve, go to people who's been in this situation before. Reach out for help because I swear there is people out there that can help you. And as people, you know, as people, we should, you know, try to help these people and stuff. Also about the whole situation about, you know, just calling out something and, you know, the whites, you know, trying to always feel like they're right. Mm -hmm. To be honest, they're not always right. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> yes, they're not always right. And it's not fair that you're pulling this out of me, oh, you're transphobic or stuff, because I said my opinion. That's my opinion. You can like it or not. It's coming from my heart, and it's my opinion. This is what I think about it. I don't care if you're transgender. You you decided that you was going to pull something out on me. I'm not going to call you out because you decided you wanted to be transgender. If you feel that way, then go ahead and feel the way. That's your opinion on how you see how I'm seeing it. 
But once you see through my eyes, you'll see why I see you're wrong and why it's wrong to call me these names. You can't go out here telling people this type of stuff. And it's wrong because I feel like we've come through so much out of the past. You know, in the school, you know, we learned this. And I feel like as we've come out, we've also gone back. We've gone back so little, though. But you see it around, and you catch it here and there, and you know it's creating new problems and bringing back old problems. You know, racist, racism, you know, it was old. You know, it was back then. And it was very terrible to see that so many people were affected by it, being bruised. And now we've come out of it, but it feels like we're going back now because you see so many more people laughing about it on the internet. And that's where the, you know, and technology comes in because it can be used for so many good things you know it can help cancer and stuff but then there's things like bullying on instagram or facebook and there's people who you know do so many awful things and it's all because of what we post on the internet this is why we have to be careful about what we do and why the rules of safety has come up as humanity people should just you know, it's sad to watch people try to swerve their way out of a conversation or argument knowing that they're right. And so, as humanity, you don't really need to see it as, well, you're doing this to try to get out of a situation. You should do it because you want to. Like, poor people, if you feel, if you've been in their place, not that way, but if you feel bad, because I've always passed these poor people on the street and I always feel bad because I'm stuck in the car and I can't give them any money and I know my mom wouldn't let me but if I did have a chance I would have gave them a home I would have gave them a space to live because it's sad and you know more people should realize that and I feel like that people just see humanity as the outside of a person you know someone said well you don't really respect yourself as a person because you always make fun of how you look and I said I don't care about how I look I can have anybody I want I have, I have so many options I could have been born with a whole different body but it's not about and I do respect myself it's not about how I look that makes me respect myself it's about how I act mm -hmm. and who I am as a human being inside and you have to realize that and I feel like it was wrong that some people see that and it's just that's all it's really sad Yep. Okay, go ahead, and then Samir. No, 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 you go, you go ahead. Please. Okay, go ahead, Samir. No, Samir. <laughs> she said, let you go. Samir. I mean, I feel like, yeah. The only thing I would add to what you're saying is like, you know, how do you tell the difference between an uh, enemy and a foe? And I think that, like, in this historical situation, it's easy to, um, uh, I get confused about that because, um, I mean, even thinking about like Du Bois starting the Pan-African Congress um, or like the World Peace Movement. Um, and I think we are in like a time of like the, like the, like a, a type of alignment or a new alignment. I don't know, you were kind of like realignment. That's what it is um, in the world. And, um, like, for instance, it's not easy to talk about China um, as people 
who are similar to us. Um, yeah. Or that of like um, or India, Korea, anybody really. And I think um, like we in this country, black people, white people, whatever, we need other people. Um, and like, you know, uh, it's one thing also to see something that's wrong, but it's another thing to be able to have a situation to confront that. And I think that black people are very isolated, but really isolated from each other. And that was the importance of the Soviet Union um, because there was, a, there was a front, you know, for peace, um, you know, uh, for the people. And, um, you know, in the 20th century, there are things going on, whether that be the civil rights struggle, um, the peace movement, um, Cuba and the Soviet Union, like there is, there is these things that made people friends with each other when there's commonalities mm -hmm. of principles, you know, like I believe that it's wrong to, you know, be mean yeah. to another person, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like, um, it's just the fact that it's um, easy to like let things slide um, even when they're wrong because, oh, you know, mm -hmm. there aren't a lot of people standing up for what's right. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, yeah, it's not a great situation. Mm -hmm. But the part about that is why the ideological struggle is important. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is like, you know, there are ideas, period, and ideas come from somewhere. Um, and where those ideas come from is what Doc is laying out. You know, um, if it's coming from the top down, people trying to tell you, you know, what to believe or how to act, um, then you can't really adopt that or you don't really want to adopt that. But if it's popular opinion, then you want to fit in. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Um, and I think that this, um, you know, realignment in the world, it does provide possibilities, but we have to be able to see that also. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's the, like the importance of knowing history, um, or like, a, but what I mean is that I was I was thinking uh, a couple of days ago, just about like this question of peace, and um, it is important what Nandita and Raju are doing, um, mm -hmm. because like, um, it's a it really is you know like. The relationship of different civilizations and countries and stuff it really is, you know, the relationship of peoples, mm -hmm. and like, it, and um, it's significant. Uh, like, free school is here now, you know what I mean? And like, we're not that popular because of the reactionary and counter-revolutionary moment that we're in. Um, so at the same time, there is like a sense of struggle that we have, um, even if things are like not great um, on the different sides, you know, with the people. Um, but I just know that, like, being connected to this realignment, having a sense of a possibility, of a vision of a future, this is the thing that you're talking about, about humanity versus the one single individual. You know what I mean? We're not really kind of fighting just for, like, 
the you know what you're saying like what's outside the yeah. material you know what i'm saying like yeah. the inside mind yeah all. right it's about where your heart's at mm -hmm. and um and yeah, no, I was just thinking that like and, and it's always to force us to only right. see us as what we are on the outside. Mm -hmm. Right, and right, right. The substance right. of us. Yeah. I'm mm -hmm. sorry. I didn't mean but in, it's no, it's just in that substance that we can see the similarities with other people. That's right, right. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I think it's just about like you know, this thing about the ideological civil war, you know, like this kind of horrible civil idea. Um, the fight for the mind, you know, the fight for the human again. Um, no, I, I, um, I, think, I think that's what makes your question more difficult. Because what you're asking is like, why not? Why can't people? Um, but it, questions. But yeah, because you're talking about like state structures, you're talking about rules and regulations, actions, attitudes, and the general like culture. And that's what makes it hard. That's what makes it, or the struggle, you know, you're able to see that there is a struggle to submit to. But at the, you know, at the end, there is, um, a, you know, where do you want to be? That's what's also in what you're saying. Um, and I think what that means is that we do have to see uh, this question of peace and humanity. Um, but there is a way to actualize it also through the ideological struggle. Um, but. Go ahead, Samir. Hmm? Oh, Jayla, right. So when you said, when you were talking about uh, Instagram and, or not, or social media, and yeah, you got to be careful about what you mm -hmm. post. That's just like you have a better understanding of the social media sphere than I think your parents or your grandparents do, and the same thing is true with me. Like I think you have a lot, we have a lot as younger people to teach older people about the changing technology because I have a sister who's ten years younger than me, and even there's a big gap between the technology. Like she grew up with YouTube, so she actually taught me how to use YouTube to solve problems. <laughs> I'm a more visual person, but that's also totally different from my parents who didn't even go to school in this country, and there's a huge you know, uh, gap in. But I mean, that brings brings me to my next point that uh, the technology is changing. You know, it's generally focused to the younger generation; they pick it up faster. And you know, one of the emerging, you know, uh, we're in a technological revolution, and one of those technologies is augmented reality and virtual reality. And we already have uh, virtual reality worlds. We have to access them through a computer. Um, but in those virtual reality worlds, we can create new identities for ourselves. Yeah. We can pick and choose what we want to represent. And we can have tokens or avatars represent us. And uh, you know, part of the Great Reset literature is this discussion on you know, workers will be able to work multiple jobs from home using augmented reality, virtual reality, and splitting their identities. And um, it makes this conversation about identity more poignant mm -hmm. and also more urgent because we could be approaching, uh, you know, a point of no return. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
could you tease a little that out a little bit more? <laughs> <laughs> oh, please continue. Yeah. All right. Um, I mean, the point of no return. When you say a point of no return, that means when we lose complete control of ourselves to technology. structure of society uh, is uh, quite fluid, but the essence uh, is still being propagated. Uh, mm -hmm. And that like uh, the 
society we have today, uh, you can say, is more inclusive to different identities, uh, so to speak. Uh, but like the essence uh, of, uh, I guess, whiteness, uh, which is your, uh, in, in many ways, being able to uh, be the beneficiary of other people being oppressed, or even you know, of your slick being the direct oppressor of other people, uh, I feel is uh, still intact. I guess you know if I if I'm slick I could go to some rural place in Idaho and even gentrify white people if I, if I want. To. <laughs> <laughs> I see white people gentrify other white people and like I could just do it in like Idaho and, uh, and so uh, the 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 way that uh, a society might look uh, the composition might might change but I I, I still feel this this essence being uh, you know, that's, that's a part of the discussion that Seraphine and Kathy and I have been having, you know, with culture. Because we, you know, one of the things we're trying to understand is how with all of these different appearances mm -hmm. through art and film, that, that the substance, mm -hmm. that is the class, race, oppression, substance, has not changed a great deal. That's what we've been trying. We've been trying to do that with all, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, I feel like um, with like technology, it's kind of like a continuation of that. Like if you're looking at like people trying to have like artificial intelligence uh, solve all of humanity's problems, yeah. uh, you know, it, like what that would create is like, or it would like further continue like. Uh, like a generation of people who don't understand what it means to like struggle or sacrifice or something. Um, yeah, just, that's, that's the problem I feel like. Yeah, they don't understand the price of information. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Go ahead, Portable. Yeah, so speak up, speak up. The question about identity, um, it's very clarifying the way you put it as one of the pillars that is used as justification for liberal democracy. But it's also being exported to places like India. So a lot of young people, college-educated people, well-meaning people, I would say, um, adopt this identity. And when they do so, they think they're making uh, an ethical choice or a moral choice or a mm -hmm. cultural choice. But it's a political choice. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, if you adopt the woke identity, you prop up white supremacy that much longer because it i mean it seems like this i you need to have this identity to not see through the you know lack of substance in the brand of democracy and freedom that this country is offering the world mm -hmm. if you didn't have this identity you would start questioning it and you would look at you know alternative models of governing could, people. could you formulate that, frame that one more time because i think it's a very Forgive me for interrupting you, but the way you put the two, could you do it just one more time? So, that if you accept the, the identity narrative of the West, you are, whether you know it or not, also accepting the white supremacist relationship, let us say, between India and the West. Yeah, for Is sure. that fair? Yeah, and let me try and put it this way. So the identity the woke identity or this sort of restructuring uh, of the American identity is not just a justification of 
Western democracy, but it's also a necessity because without it, if you didn't have this particular identity, if you didn't adopt it, you would see through it and you would question it and you would look towards China and you'd look towards the Soviet Union and you would start questioning what is a just, what is a logical way of governing masses of people who are poor and suffering. But once you adopt this identity, you get so, I mean, it, it's just so distracting because you're thinking about the environment and then you have to be politically correct at every point um, throughout the day, all your life. And then you don't ask these questions anymore. So I think along, I will repeat that. So I, I, along with being a justification for liberal democracy, it is a necessity of liberal democracy. And it's a necessity because you have to export it to the rest of the world. And when young people in India adopt the woke identity thinking I'm doing the right thing by people, unwittingly they become complicit in propping up Western uh, white supremacy that much longer. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a little heartbreaking. Um, uh, Danny and then Siddhartha. I was um, thinking of how it's like um, things change to preserve themselves or change in order to save capitalism. So when you were saying this has become a necessity then, and I was just thinking of the famous line, all that solid melts the air, mm -hmm. right? Like in other words, things have to change to kind of hold on. And I was thinking also of how the word solidarity itself has yeah. changed over the last, I don't know, 100 years yeah. um, in terms of actually what you were mentioning um, a few minutes ago um, about like, it used to be the case that, you know, I don't know, workers competed against each other. They had solidarity despite such, despite such. It wasn't necessarily that they had to be friends, but they recognized the common humanity. Now solidarity means like being in your head like, I want to know what your opinion is, and I want it to be my opinion, kind of thinking of you as a human, and demanding, like, you have to like me, right? This kind of thing like that. And that kind of falling out in that sense is really a reflection of how, um, someone was mentioning human humanity earlier. I was trying to write down um, all of this. But that's fallen out, and it's become more about human. Because if you think of humanity, then you think of yourself in relationship to people who are not yet born. Mm -hmm everyone who's come before you think of history, yeah. right? And then that changes everything versus like, you know, who are you? I mean, I'm a great person, I just met you as well, but like wanting to know in your head and demand that it agrees with me rather than recognizing something that's necessarily shared in that sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I wanted to add to what, uh, what Purva was saying and also the conversation before regarding the essence of ideas that are being championed by the ruling elite today, like inclusivity and diversity, mm -hmm. especially in academia and universities. It seems that it's at a very superficial level that the conversation, I mean, that the conversation in academia is regarding diversity because we are, I mean, on the one hand, the diversity of appearances is being championed while there is really no conversation regarding diversity of ideas because <laughs> the moment that I mean, people, um, that young people come from all over the world to this country, I think they face an uh, like a very imminent pervasive threat to adopt the ideas of the West. I mean, in terms of very simple, like very simple things like um, like personal space and boundaries and so on and so forth. And I think 
resisting these ideas takes a lot of metal and I think this is a result of the fact that we have really had more than a generation of Western dominance and people have, like young people coming in today, they have really been born and brought up in a relatively a relatively non-revolutionary time. We have not really seen through the struggles of the past. We have read about it in sort of an academic, at an academic distance. It's not been a part of our lives, not even most of our parents' lives. And yeah, so these ideas become, they are almost foreign to people, even from the rest of the world who are coming into here. And so there isn't a diversity of ideas at this point anymore. People are really adopting what the ruling class is throwing down upon them. And yes, they do appear to be to be the morally right, to be the righteous thing to do. It's yeah, it's really heartbreaking. Uh, I, I also want to come back to what Barker was saying. If I could just say just ask a question if you don't mind. Because this is a, I know I think I was discussing something of this with Michelle. We were uh, there's a uh, article in the New York Times <laughs> on Asian Americans, and uh, Emily is not here because uh, she and I were texting back and forth. But then I had a discussion with um, uh, with Michelle about it, and um, well, Michelle, you want to say something? Because I think this, uh, you know, the question of uh, diversity of appearance and commonality of ideology or oneness of ideology. I don't know whether you want to. Uh, no, no, you, you go ahead. I'll, I'll just say, and then maybe Michelle will come in on it. This is a an Asian, well, see this, when you say Asian, it's hard to say what you're talking about because Asia is so diverse, but we're talking about East Asia. Uh, pretty much in this case, Chinese and Korean. Mm -hmm. Let's put not ja not even Japanese right now. So he, this is a long article in the New York Times, which we should probably share on the the uh, preschool uh, Facebook page. And it's a very sophisticated, well written essay uh, by a person who is Chinese American, son of immigrants, who is now married to a white woman and has a mixed race son or son? Uh, son, yes. Daughter? Son. No, daughter. He's daughter. He's Korean. Oh, he's Korean. Oh, excuse me, Korean. But, but in this argument, it doesn't matter. I mean, because there is kind of a, you know, uh, Chinese, Korean, oh, you know, we're all the same. We're Asian American. But what he made, the point he makes is that the whole Asian American category is a invention for political purposes by uh, Democratic Party and other operatives, mm -hmm. uh, and it is um, appropriated by, and again, quote, Asian American elites as a discursive tool in the discussion with white elites about inclusiveness. Did you read it, Kat? I read a bit 
Yeah, yeah. It's I'll, a, I'll share it on the Yes, but it, is that, if, did I have, did I make the point right? Now, um, he does, in the beginning, quote James Baldwin. In the middle. Huh? In the middle. Oh, sorry, I'm in the middle. It's a long article. Man. Amen. I had to dig to find that. Yeah, yeah. And um, he quotes James Baldwin from The Fire Next Time. And of course, when you quote James Baldwin, you know, a lot of people are going to get weak in the knees right out the gate. Oh, he got to be on the right side. He quoted James Baldwin. <laughs> but he quotes James Baldwin. And I'm not saying he didn't he didn't do it for a in a bad faith way necessarily. But he abandons James Baldwin quickly to say, yes, that is the gold standard. And he even goes so far as to cite Grace Lee Boggs and Yuri Kochiyama. He says that's the gold standard. But we cannot uh, aspire to that high level. That what we are left with is this situation, which leaves us with few options. Or hardly any, with no options, no agency. No agency. Is that fair, Michelle? No agency. I have to become white for the future of my daughter. Now, now, uh, Michelle and I, Michelle engaged him, and in fact, and has invited him to the Winston conference. And I actually, I look forward to meeting him. This is this guy is nobody to take lightly. But his argument is that as a, quote, Asian American, not a South Asian, not a Filipino, not a, Indo, not a Vietnamese or Laotian, Cambodian, none of that, Northeast Asian, as such, I am without agency, is another way of saying I am without options. I must in all um, essential things become white. Now, clearly, this applies to the Indian, right? You can see it on television. The Indian expert who has become white. Just like a cat, I'm really fascinated with this one that's on NBC, Vin Gupta. <laughs> Vin. <laughs> I mean, the Gupta, you know, Gupta, Indian, you know, but Vin, is there a Vin? Okay, we know the Vin, but I'm just saying that that is who he is, and of course his persona and presentation makes him, in all particulars, white, and he would argue, I have no choice. Now, Michelle and I discussing this, and um, and of course, you know, there, there are many interpretations, and, and you know, we, because Michelle uh, responded, you know, and has even emailed him, 
And he responded to her email. That's news to me if he But the thing is, um, no, uh, in the chat on the article, uh, Michelle uh, commented, and many people commented upon her comment. No, no, okay, they didn't, they didn't comment, but they liked it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, you mean they replied? It's, 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 it's a long essay. So, but then I do know this part. Uh, Michelle and I differed on the article. And I mean, not a, you know, I mean, and it's, it's that space for interpretation. I had, I don't know why I have to tell the whole story. I texted Emily, because I, I don't think she had seen the article. I texted it to her, and she texted back, and then I texted. And then she, I said that I felt that the article, that he, the author, played to all of the white stereotypes of Asian men as smart, but how would I put this? Without any toughness, mm -hmm. without any agency. You know what I'm saying? We're not a threat. One of the ways to navigate the white world, the white male dominated world, I'm not a threat to white men. You see what I'm saying? Uh, now, he's married to a white woman. But that's not a threat. It, you know, you go back 50 years ago, that would be seen as a threat. Oh, you're taking our women. But now, you know, uh, there's a different thing going on. But the thing that I felt, uh, and, and Michelle, you can see, and this is what I said to Michelle, the abandonment of agency. I said, once he abandoned agency, you know, uh, I said, F him. You know what I'm saying? It's, he threw in the towel. It was a surrender without a fight. You know? So why should I fight? I got everything I need. And he even wanted, he, tell me if I'm right about this, Michelle. He made the argument that the anti-Asian the, the anti -Asian violence thing is but a trope. It's not, it's not a serious matter, but it, it's good for us to use in our discussion with white male elites for the purpose of inclusion or diversity. You see what I'm saying? Uh, but, but go ahead, Jerry. I mean, but Michelle, you could say if I'm being accurate. Okay, go ahead, Jerry. Well, I also read the article, but um, it seemed like one of the things that he was kind of saying or the message that was coming across was like he's observant like at least that like this whole Asian American thing is something that was basically invented in universities and is used among like the elite Asians in America to yeah to have like some kind of I don't know, almost leverage in like these white elite spaces but his solution for it or like the way that he resolves this thing is it is essentially he falls into the this thing of yeah complacency and safety, which is a, everything that Baldwin attacks um, 
where he's trying to expose what this what this dream of whiteness or this dream of safety actually means. And um, I think he also he like the way that he justifies his his whole like even his own because I think he, ultimately he's trying to justify his own life. Yeah. And you know the way the his the choices his choices in life, but the way he does that is to say, okay, well if you look at you know, working class or poor immigrants to America, Asian ones, they don't identify with the Asian American thing. They just want their children to um, to become upwardly mobile in American society, you know? And so he, his whole thing is that, like, he's trying to position himself as, actually, I'm the one who's fulfilling or staying honest to the aspirations of the working class immigrant Asian. And what I think he... Because he also, when he's referencing Baldwin, he's like, you know, you can't really compare Asian Americans to Black America because they have this like multi-hundred-year history of struggle, you know, and there's an experience that comes out of that, and you can't just, you know, create this label of Asian American and somehow this also carries the same weight of history. But I think he totally he references the Korean War like at the beginning, but in doing that, he totally uh, obscures and ignores the actual history of Asian people, like the anti-colonial struggle, and that that is a, it's not something which really took place in America, but that's something which people carry, can choose to carry with them and be that thing which actually shapes their worldview and the choices that they make and how they move through society. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just think that it's, it's like, good at least that he's observant of like like what's actually underneath like this whole asian american thing but he ultimately is trying to justify his own um yeah his own cowardice or his own complacency in like falling into essentially what baldwin describes as like the trap of like this lie of safety um and yeah i don't know i think that's more broadly i feel like it is part of the larger like the larger discussion, I guess, that we're having today in terms of, um, yeah, especially the younger generation. It's like part of what makes the situation so difficult is that I think to have any sense of like a moral compass or like even the range of options which are available for a people um, or, for, or for a society is that people have to understand that they are um, vessels of history, you know, and so much of what the culture is nowadays is that you make people think that they don't have that they don't really have any history like in substance and that you know like Baldwin talks about this a lot but you know people in America think that all of their problems are you know things that have only ever happened like just to them you know and you know like he makes this point that you have to actually accept the history that shaped you in order to transcend it or to actually move through it um and yeah i don't know I, I just think that like it's a shame that someone who i think like a writer like him like who is pretty perceptive of things hasn't been able to actually accept that he is shaped by history and that even yeah even like i don't know like the working class asian immigrant who doesn't identify with the asian american label it's like you are also robbing them of the agency to actually um, to actually reckon with their own history and to know that they come from a very long line of 
you know, of humanity which has struggled against whiteness or against this particular version of what it means to be white, which is to see yourself as separate from humanity and like to think that you are safe from all of the things which happen in the world. Um, and yeah, I think that's, uh, I guess, the tragedy of it. But yeah, I don't know. It was, it was an interesting article. Oh, yeah. sure. And you could see what such an argument and such an article would, would have resonance in South Korea. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, but I, I, but any, anybody else? Oh, Jalen, go ahead. Yep. Um, I just kind of want to bring back what you said about identity because I started thinking about how you said, you know, you know, people who didn't come to America watch movies, you know, like, oh, this is an American or oh, this is a white person, black person. But he kind of forgot to mention that as Americans, movies, if we haven't experienced that yet, we see it as each other, also from from countries we haven't seen. Right. I watched. This, this is no question. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I know. Um, because I thought, I'm not trying to be rude, but I thought all Indians kind of had like a red dot just right in the middle of the forehead. But you know, I've met a couple Indians from time to time, and I realized that they do not all have that. Yeah. And I also, you know, thought. You know, high school would be traumatizing because, you know, that one girl who's rich, blonde hair, and just popular and just wants to bully everyone. And I realized that I've actually never contacted with any of those type of people that who have blonde hair. All my friends have dark hair or brown eyes. And it was because I was scared to. <laughs> yeah. And it was all because. I thought that, you know, people with blonde hair or blue eyes or something like that were going to, you know, be mean and stuff. But I actually found someone who isn't. And it's, and it's just like, it's, it's mean. And I felt like it was mean as I grew up because it was based off of something that was meant to be just for fun, just to watch. And I thought that it just determined who these people were and who they are, but they are their own person, and I felt like really bad about that. This is yeah. very important, what you said. But somebody else? Oh, Sophie, I'm sorry. I didn't see you. Speak up a little bit, Sophie. Um, well, when Jeremiah was talking about this article, I was thinking about how um, the professional material class is kind of that warmth itself right now in seeing these contradictions but having no yeah. solution to them and like right. backing down so much that they're just losing hope and like the thing about this writer is that he is most angry at like Asian American academics and scholars because of he sees them as like fetishizing and um idolizing people like Grace Lee Boggs very um, because of like what they stood for in being principled with the black community and he sees this as something that happened in history and which is impossible to have today um, but then he comes to the same conclusion as Asian American academics in that the only thing we can do is <coughs> is uplift like poor Asian immigrants and like give our money to them, like make sure they're safe and their children like can grow up well. But 
Um, it's just so ironic because because even though these people are ideologically opposed, like they still can't face themselves and um, realize like what the real tradition of working people in this country has been is to align on <coughs> principle and connect with people through a common humanity um, rather than you know seeing the world through guilt. Um, there's a couple of different things that I was uh, thinking about uh, over the course of the conversation. Um, one being uh, when you had brought up uh, identity, um, I thought the Dave Chappelle special was uh, pretty good as well um, in terms of what he was saying. But it, you know, when you had laid out identity, I'm forgetting now what it was that you had said. Um, but it seems that identity is used as a tool to corral the masses, to stop them from uh, being able to uh, uh, think. Because it seems like identity politics, you know, is a diversion away. It's it's postmodern and, and it you know it diverts itself away from conditions. You know, it diverts itself away from being able to see the problems. Mm -hmm. In fact, the transgender problem becomes the problem, the American problem. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And um, it's interesting because um, I've been reading this uh, book called The Stalin Era by uh, Anna Louise Strong. Mm -hmm. um, and she has this formulation uh, about uh, Stalin, but about um, you know this thing, this idea called the will of the people mm -hmm. and how he was able to tap into the will of the people. The will of the people being able being this uh, you know these 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 huge sort of you know ideological, but but in a, in a lot of ways their dreams or uh, their aspirations and being able to tap in on their agency and their the will to do something that is they will do it. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like the reason why I bring up the will of the people um, is I well first of all I feel like this is a very important concept as a revolutionary mm -hmm. um, because you know without it you know you don't have movement. You don't have, uh, a, a, without agency, basically, you know, without, um, you don't have uh, the ability to move forward without the will to move forward, if you see what I'm saying. Um, and so what's interesting about identity politics and, you know, where the, the American people are is that um, the American people um, have, in a lot of ways, expressed their dissatisfaction with the, the disunity that identity politics or uh, the disunity that postmodernism has caused. Right. You know, there's these, I mean, you know, you see on Fox News all the time, there's constantly parents, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, lashing out uh, uh, with their words, with their ideas, um, and stating that, you know, they don't like ideas like critical race theory. They don't like, you know, being being forced down their, uh, being forced down their throat mm -hmm. um, identity or, 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 or critical race or division. At base, um, I think part, but see, there's a negative in it because part of the will of the people is uh, progress. Uh, it's, you know, you constantly hear, you know, we are a progressive country. Uh, last, like you were just saying, last generation was better than this generation, um, and you know, we're gonna, we, you know, things have getting, things are getting better, and that is part of the will of the people. Uh, but see, this, 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 this progression that is natural amongst humanity. You know, you see it in the Soviet Union, you see it in China, you see it in the American. People. Um, but, but it has been distorted. You know, it's been it's been uh, used uh, 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 to justify uh, 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 the the, the uh, I would say the lies uh, and the, the perpetuation of exploitation 
uh, of the working class in America and uh, you know, not being able to see the peoples of the world abroad. Um, and I, I, so I think there's something in, you know, it's, it's, it's part, I think, you know, in, to kind of close that point out, the, um, there, ha there has to be, the, the progression has to be realigned. And this brings me to my next point with what Serafina was talking about. And to speak to the realignment for a vision, or, or, or a vision uh, for the future, um, because that is uh, what we see in China. Well, it is what we see in uh, the Democratic People's of, uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Uh, and I'd like to bring my uh, a point to you know me and Emil had once seen the movie um, My Brothers and Sisters to the North, which I've mentioned. I think I mentioned before. Um, but in that in that movie, you see the fruits of of labor. You see the fruits of uh, having a revolution and, and, and having a, a, a democratic strivings. You know, uh, one thing I, I always walk away with is they have um, they had skating rinks and, and, and water parks. You know, for people to uh, 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 enjoy themselves. You know, because that's part of life. Yeah. Um, and the American people are not enjoying themselves. And this is not a part of life. This is a distortion. Yeah. Um, and so it was interesting because after I had watched the movie, I, I was like. Uh, you know, I think I'd walked home, um, but I was just so uplifted. I was just so, like, I had walked with such a purpose. It's, it's similar, I would say, to, you know, they, they had talked about, or King had uh, uh, um, observed during the Montgomery bus boycott that people were holding themselves much more upright. Um, in, 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 um, and because they had, then they were walking with a purpose, because there was this dream. You know what I mean? Uh, there was this democratic striving for, you know, we're going to be desegregated. And then after that, we're you know we're not going to go to war with Vietnam. And then after that, we're not going to have uh, we're going to eliminate poverty. After that, we're you know we're going to eliminate racism. You know we're going to have a type of equality when people can hold themselves upright. And I think that's you know just to speak to uh, to that point that Seraphine is saying. You know the importance of realign the, the realignment and uh, black people and working class people being able to see themselves um, in this realignment in in um, the in the struggle once again um, because I feel that. You know, going back to this this idea of the will, the will of the people. I I I, I mean, it's clear as day. All I mean, I think it's up to. Uh, there's a lot of things that came into my head, um, but it, it's it's you know the people have not lost their sense of of, of dreaming. They never will, you know. Um, but it's up to the revolutionaries, um, whoever 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 can uh, direct the will, whoever can direct the dreams. You know, uh, controls the masses. Uh, you know, not to and not to put it in, in 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 that they don't have agency, but this is the power of ideas. Um, uh, and so, what I would say here is that you know, uh, when it comes to this, the idea of the idea of a North Korea and, and not being the enemy, the idea of our own revolutionary struggles not being in the past but being our history, being vessels of history. I like the way you put that, Jeremiah. Um, that we we are vessels of revolution um, is something, if the American people can shift from the thing-oriented to the people-oriented, <laughs> they can free themselves. Um, but that's the, that's, that's the great dream that we have to reinstill in the American people. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing. Joe, did I, you, you want um, to speak, I'm sorry. It's all right. Um, a lot of things have been said already, but uh, I wanted to actually respond to what you were saying for about way back about this connection between um, this reconfiguration of identity and I guess inclusivity 
and connecting that to white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And I guess one example of that was, is, I guess, the whole queer movement and this queer identity. Um, in that, I feel like it's being used, I, I feel it infiltrating especially immigrant, young immigrant populations and like Asian Americans especially. And in embracing, I guess, queer identity and queerness, it is somehow serving as a way to then turn their back on the Asian countries that they come from and also the anti-colonial struggle that they come from. Um, and like as a gay person, it's so hard to denounce queerness just because <laughs> society tells you that if you feel one way or another, you're automatically part of this LGBTQIA plus plus XYZ umbrella. Um, but I think what we talked about today of holding humanity at the center of our struggle, like that provides so much clarity on how to stand or where to stand, I guess, on some of these issues. And um, yeah, I think queerness and uh, these identity politics uh, are being used to really obscure, um, and it's just become so damaging. Um, yeah. No, so I have, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of men that I came up with who are or were gay, some have passed on. And um, I can I can really tell you, uh, and I just one of my good friends, we, uh, some years ago we formed an organization called the Brothers Network to create across uh, gender and sexuality identities among black men a common discourse. and. Um, I so wish that my friend Gregory Walker would come to the preschool. For some reason, he won't come. But he's a gay man. And he actually, I have to tell you, he sees the queer movement as the enemy of black people. And I can, you know, and my brother, he feels it's white. And, I, you know, um, this is what I've learned. My brother was gay. I could never, I mean, I, when I say I could never, it was so hard to understand why they were so anti-white. You know, there's always among black people, there's an anti-white. It's really an expression of anti-oppression, anti-white supremacy. But among black gay men, maybe not of the current generation, but I know among them, they are anti-white. They feel that on the gay, I mean, on the AIDS question, on, uh, they talked about how in the gayborhood, down there 13th and Walnut, all mm -hmm. around in there, those bars would not let black men in. There would always be a whole lot of harassment. And my friend Gregory, and then my friend Wardell, who just passed on, they felt that the LGBTQ movement was a white movement trying to usurp the fire and intensity and centrality of the black movement. 
And I, that, I was just going to say about that article. See, this guy said, I don't have no options. Right. There are multiple options. Yeah. I mean, there are all kind of options. You, we do not have to submit to the white elite narrative. I don't care whether it was on sexual preference, sexual identity. I mean, even on LGBTQ. Look, most LGBTQ in the working, I mean, most transgendered in the working class are, never have an operation. They don't have no operation. They pretty much still have their, you know, their male genitalia. You understand what I'm saying? Most uh, black female LGBT, I mean, a transgender, still have female genitalia. They behave more or less like, I guess, the opposite gender. You know what I'm saying? In terms, they can establish families, relationships, even though they may have had, like take a woman who's now uh, uh, performing maleness, I'll put it that way. She may have had children in the past or have nieces and nephews who referred to him or her as auntie. You understand what I'm saying? So <laughs> this um, kind of new boundary setting where I'm going to tell you what the boundaries are and how you are to be, I can I can say this. Uh, that, that was my thing when me and Michelle were talking, when me and Emily were texting. There are so many options. I mean, why do you have to flatline Asian people, or oh, we can't be but one way, and that's more or less white. I mean, there's a whole black world out here that, you know, that stands for, in the most profound generic sense, freedom. And once you go black, then you go towards the anti-colonial struggle. Oh, go, go ahead, Michelle. I'm sorry, Michelle, it's me. <laughs> Go ahead, man. <laughs> no, I just, I just wanted to say, I think that's also, this is also why the Henry Winston conference is going to be so important to assert, you know, in the midst of this crisis, um, that the youth have the opportunity and the ability to struggle or to align themselves with a specific tradition, because, um, you know, like, I guess with that article, he's, he's, yeah, I mean, like that. That giving up of um, a way out. Uh, yeah. What what will the Asian Americans say, or what will the Asians say when, you know, we go to them with a the message that actually there is, you know, a different epistemology, there is a different uh, route for struggle, and it's it's to be found, you know, in the tradition and the history of Black America. Mm -hmm. um, you know, suddenly like a new world opens up, and that's that's what I found interesting about that article is I, I felt that a lot of his arguments hinged on that bedrock of identity politics saying mm -hmm. that because I only have like this Asian history of Grace Lee Boggs or Yuri Kochiyama, like I'm stuck, you know, but at the same time, I don't want to go to the white world. At the same time, I can't go to the black world. But you know, like the dam can be broken if the argument is made to say actually this was a movement for the freeing of humanity coming from the American tradition. And um, 
it's something that you can, you know, it's something to be furthered. Like, are you, are you with humanity then? You know, are you with humanity or not? And um, yeah, I mean, this is like captured in the history of like Lotus or the Cornell reading group, you know, us finding our anchoring as Asians in the black tradition. But um, I guess the reason like I was quite taken or fascinated with that article is just, um, it's a reassertion of the imperative of like bringing, you know, the black freedom struggle to the youth today, not just Asians, but the fact that breaking this paradigm, um, I mean, like you had said in discussion yesterday, could really be the start of like mounting a movement mm -hmm. for people just to know, you know, this is available. Uh, so go ahead, uh, Derek. And so, you know, everything that I've learned in my life experience is that this youth movement, you know, I'm, it's like I'm running in a race and I'm in the race within this movement. You know, and anything that came in front of me, ideas and characteristics of people that I love, most of them was different people from other countries, models of, of my model and my mind was of Gandhi and my model and my mind was, was Mal. I had all of these unique models of these characters. So most of my library of things that I looked at, they wasn't like dead ideas, whether it was from Korea, you know, different countries. But the thing about it is like, to, to try to find that acceptance you know, to be with other people, don't make them the other people like like that um, for the sake of this movement. This is, for me, I'm sitting there saying, but this is the unique um, symposium I read about of all these creative people and they operate together like in this kind of like very unique communication and, and for which not, for my, which come from being in India, they're communicating like we're in this communicating chain of events, and it, and and it's hard to try to suppress it. As, and for my whole personal life, I couldn't suppress me being in the movement. I had to find ways of relearning about who I am and what I am, and my my neighborhoods I grew up with, and 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 and, and basically love that this is a part of your life. And it's not like downhill. It's not all uphill all the time either, but. It's, it's, it's a rolling train of things. It, you don't jump off, you don't jump overboard or jump on somebody else's track. You're on the wrong track again. And, and, and find this thing like being a wonderful, you know, medium of, 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 of special characteristics that we need to hammer together to bring mm -hmm. this unique experience. Because people, they, also, they, like, they don't even know what to do with themselves. And this is like a whole range of humanity, not just from Korea or African Americans, we all got our unique qualities of to um to bring from our um, unique community experience. This is this. Can is I important. just translate something that you just said? From my, you know, we back in the days, I know when I was a kid, you know, we heard Gandhi's name as much as Martin Luther King's name, but then we also heard with the Chinese Revolution Mao. And we read, we heard about these people, but like Derek said, we never could have imagined sitting around the room and working with Chinese and Indian and all of these people from different countries. Yes. And Af we, because we, you know, we heard these names, but we never thought we would all be together like yes. this. Is that? Yes, yes this, is, this is like, I, this is a grand stage for me, not just a stage, but. My, I'm not no reactionary, like I'm just going to fall out of place. This is where I, I learned my experience, and it was the church of the advocate 
was one of my t-shirts or sweatshirts. So this was in 60 something. This is like, you know, this is a wonderful thing to um to be a part of my life and my granddaughter, my very one of my peers. <laughs> my God. We it's authenticating our lifestyle. I like principles. And, and had Jones imagine. We never thought we would be in something like this, although we felt we could study foreign countries and other people. Yeah. We never thought we would be yeah. in a collective yeah. with them like this. We never I, did. I, I, I've been to the United Nations in 1966, and I know they, they wouldn't expect me to turn on the intercom, but I did. <laughs> because they didn't, nobody put it on for us. And I could see my teacher looking at me like back of her head saying, I know you did. Y'all wanted us to be in this place, but we ain't heard a thing yet. We ain't hear a thing. Anyway, my adrenaline and my, uh, uh, not my ability, is what I was learning at home, this, this radiated. So I was at the United Nations and, you know, this conference, nobody tells us what is really going on. You know, why are we here? Are we, are we, are we, are we picked, selected to come here for a reason? No, we going that was the wrong, they made a mistake. Tony went to Wagner. Okay, he already broke out. Forget that. We don't know when we're going to break out of this Okay, hey, Derek, let me call on Danny and then back to Jeremiah. Um, I, I was thinking of sort of what's, Constellated about um, democracy and identity, and I was thinking about um, what kind of activity democracy is. And I was thinking when people are democratic, they kind of relate across difference, they sympathize. Mm -hmm. and it was making me think about identity then in terms of that sense of, we've kind of been talking about two different ways in which there's identity. There's identity in terms of what the bureaucracy tells us, these are the identities you get to choose, mm -hmm. you know, or, right, you gotta get in line with one of them or in terms of something that is like a shared collective project in terms of how people relate together and actually would produce something in that sense. Mm -hmm. And it was making me think about this question of democracy today then, because when you were talking about the election, mm -hmm. I was thinking about, okay, like what's an election? It's supposed to register the people's will, mm -hmm. and yet all of the topics that are discussed are not representing any of the questions that people have. They already are set in stone, literally, in the debates. Like, some questions that I guess they decided at CNN, right? I never decided on that or something like that. Um, and in that sense then, what has kind of, one, fallen out and what people have also um, adapted to in a way uh, is like a question of policies, because I guess that relates more to like an identity, meaning asking what is done or gets represented in terms of like uh, words, like you're mentioning this, um, infrastructure bill, like they can say, look, yeah, we have this person's name here, this kind of community, so stop complaining kind of thing, versus the question of politics, which would not just be what is done, but how it's done, and yeah. by Hume, uh, whom, not Hume, but um, <laughs> slip, I guess, because I, I was being skeptical, so, um, and that just, and representation's kind of been like a false version of the how, they go, oh, don't we represent you, because we have so I was just thinking about sympathy as something that's yeah. out. Yeah. Can I just say something? Yeah. And this, this is back to Eddie. Yeah. The form or the representation of something versus the substance of that thing. This is, this is a huge matter. And from a radical democratic point of view, and that's kind of where we're at, 
And by radical democracy, we're talking about democracy hedged with conditions of changing the whole socioeconomic system. In other words, we're not just fighting for democracy to keep the substance of things the same. We're fighting for democracy to empower people to make a revolutionary change. And this is where I think uh, identity politics, as we call it, kind of short circuits the whole thing, you know, pulls the plug out. You know, oh, don't worry, you know, uh, I, 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 yeah, that's why I would say pulls the plug out because there's a natural logic to the fight for democracy and the fight to rev for revolutionary change in the economic system. It's, it's natural because as people are empowered, let's say the poor are empowered, do you think once they are empowered, they're going to go back to a situation without power and back to poverty? No, they're going to fight to, you know, but that's yeah, that's all I would say. Yeah, yeah, I could, you know. Uh, go ahead, Jared. Yeah, I mean, I think um, also with what Jake was saying earlier about like the will of the people and even places like North Korea, I think it seems like what's happening now or what's been the agenda for the past several decades in the U.S. is it almost feels like you're robbing the people of any will at all. And I mean, you can see it very clearly in the fact that why is the life expectancy for the poor and for the non-college educated in America, why is it decreasing? Even again, compared to the other so-called advanced countries, why is it, why is the why are people falling into these um, depths of despair with alcoholism, with drug abuse, with um, suicide? And I think I, I, I totally agree with what people are saying in terms of part of why it's important um, even to look at whether it's people like Henry Winston or even to look at what what has happened. Um, and the achievements that have been made in other countries like China or North Korea mm -hmm. is like exactly what people are saying. Of you give people like this is a struggle for democracy. You give people options. You sort of like you have people need to know what the options are in order to even have a will in the first place. And I think like something that I think has stood up or stood out to me is I I feel like people in the younger generation very much underestimate the extent to which you know even like. Like when you guys were growing up, like there wasn't really internet, and so you could say there was less access, quote unquote, to what was happening in the world. But actually, it's I think people in your generation were much more tuned into what was happening around the world, especially with the world anti-colonial struggle. Whereas today, you could say you know young people have a lot of access to information, but you're not really tuned into what's happening in the world, and everything is actually designed to distance you from what's happening in the world and to limit your options and to essentially rip out people's um, will to struggle or will to live in general. Mm -hmm. And um, I think just one piece about, about North Korea is that, you know, the, the caricature of North Korea today is that, you know, people don't have any information, you know, everything's censored, you don't know anything about the world if you're in the North. But um, actually, if you look at the history, North Korea was like for the extent of its history has been the most even compared to this or actually especially compared to the south has been the one that's the most tuned in to what's happening in the world especially with you know vietnam with what was happening in like the socialist countries like the vast movement of humanity for peace um north korea was the country comparing the two koreas which was the most plugged in with what was happening in the world and i think 
even looking at the more recent history, it's like, okay, you have to recognize that the North Koreans were the ones who were the most attuned to humanity. And with the collapse of the Soviet Union and this choice of like, okay, well, maybe we could, like, you have this choice of either North Korea follows a path that other um, collapsed socialist societies have followed, mm -hmm. or we stick to our revolution. I think people underestimate the fact that the people of North Korea made that choice. They stuck with their leadership. They stuck with their revolutionary process. And you have to ask, like, is that a democratic choice? Like, that is the full, that I think, like, I don't know. It's it's hard to formulate, but, like, that is the expression of democracy because, I, yeah, the will of the people. And I think just, like, the last thing is, like, some of us been, have been looking at, like, the Korean War in particular. And I think even even in terms of, you know, these democratic reforms, or which are, I guess you could say are more the form of democracy. Like after um, Korea was liberated from Jap Japanese occupation in like 1945, um, you know, you had in the north, or you had across the country these like this emergence of these organic people's committees. You know, especially because I think people also underestimate the fact that throughout Korea's occupation under Japan, you know, the Korean people were always constantly searching for ways out. You know, they at one point they looked to the U.S. and Woodrow Wilson's, you know, points his whole um, 14 points of like self-determination, whatever. You know, they looked to that. They were also looking at the Soviet Union and what was happening there, constantly like, searching for ways for freedom. And um, as a result of that, after the ending of colonialism by Japan, you know, these um, these committees sprouted up organically of people self-governing or searching for ways of self-governance and. What you had in the South was basically the U.S. came and cut them off and in installed a military dictatorship by the U.S. government. And in the North, you had um, the emergence of figures like Kim Il-sung, who, you know, were trying to form these like coalition, United Front governments to move with the will of the people, which was for um, genuine people's democracy, like the substance of democracy. Mm -hmm. And I think even that, it's like. Like so much of that that history of like what actually was the will of the Korean people at that period of history, um, and then who was moving with it and actually trying to take it further and to um, to perfect or develop a state form which can actually facilitate that will of the people. Um, I think people I don't, like whether it's in South Korea or in America, we really don't know any of that, or you're prevented from actually understanding that history. And um, yeah, no, I, I was just thinking about what, what Jake was saying in terms of democracy and um, places like North Korea. And I think, yeah, I think like leaders like Kim Il-sung were very cognizant of, you know, we don't want to just mimic, you know, like this, the, the parliamentary democracies of like the West. Like we want democracy in substance. We want genuine democracy, one which actually reflects and can carry forward the will of the people and actually execute um, what the people want. But yeah, I think it's important, I think, to look at those countries and those experiments and those achievements around the world because so much of what has been done to the American people is to rob them of any will to struggle in the first place or to um, make it feel like there are no, really no other, no options other than what the ruling right, class right, dictates. Right, right, right. Oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't believe no, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, a lot of this discussion is making me think of how uh, Henry Winston formulated um, the uh, the progress of the struggle for freedom in America being uh, held back or 
being kept in a pre-civil rights moment. He, he spoke of struggle in stages and how you know, the, the uh, civil rights movement, or what we call the black freedom movement, was very powerful in what it did in unifying black people and progressives in you know, uh, getting basic rights met, uh, at least uh, legally speaking, to many uh, black people in the population. But of course, that wasn't enough. And King even asked himself, like, you know, is, so, is it that we're uh, emigrating into a burning house? Which I think today we all look around, we see the flames everywhere we look. Um, but in many ways, and I like the way you put it, the discussion of being centered around trans and binary and identity is a rebranding of the civil rights era that the ruling class would really be more comfortable us discussing that <laughs> instead of what King eventually started talking about, which was housing, poverty, and war. Um, those things, you know, immediately start to bring up a different kind of discussion, a different kind of solution to the problems. Um, and uh, as much as this branding campaign has been successful in many ways, I mean, I was looking at the, the, the polling data for, um, they were doing Democrats and Republicans, and of course, when we talk about the two different parties, we're still only talking about like a third, if two-thirds of the population, you know, a good 40% of the population doesn't participate in the political um, elections. But an interesting thing to see is since 2019 to this year, the uh, favorability of the FBI, of the CIA, of the CDC, yeah. of all the major institutions in this country have gone from like in the Republican field, like from 75, 80% support to like 20%. Yeah, 20% <laughs> in some polls, in these Gallup polls. So it's like, that's that's a severe um, disillusion of the what you Democrats. Well, the, the Democrats is a little bit the opposite. They had 50% out of 66%. But I, I still think, you know, the majority of the population still isn't participating. When the majority of the population is not participating, that speaks to a lack of faith in it. When the other half is participating and saying, we don't trust the institutions, that's even more of a majority. <laughs> okay. So um, it's, a, it's a critically, uh, it, it, they're in a critical um, crisis right now. Um, and that's why they're throwing these things in the air and, and, and trying to see what can stick. Um, but, you know, this, this dream of, of America, this white dream of, you know, you can have dignity as long as you have money. Uh, you know, white people aren't buying that anymore because they, they you know, they, they can't pay for their mortgage. They don't have a job. They don't see any. They send their kids to the school. The school doesn't want to teach the kid any kind of dignity about their own history. So. They don't want to live in a life where they have their kids have nothing to believe in and they have no future. You know, you know so it's it's um I see a lot of opportunity for us. Yeah, that's why I keep thinking like there is still a struggle and that's the ideological struggle. Like what is the ideo ideology? You know, first of all, that's something that like is kind of foreign, at least to this this my generation. But then it's like um like we were kind of talking about how like uh the struggle in the past like we 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 read that and intellectualize that in universities and whatnot um but we but like and as we know like in preschool like we learn from it it gives us a template a way of thinking a way of seeing the world that um allows us to think about or strategize really um about today and what's going on. And I think like, um, yeah, like there still is a struggle, which I think is what, is a, is like a, it's something that 
it's taking out either the language or the understanding of other people because it's like, oh, okay, we don't have anything else to go to. That's a sentiment that I I can I hear from other people. Like, you know, you give up. Like there's nothing else, you know. So like, you know what I mean? Like you go into different avenues of escape, you know. Um like, yeah. Um, these are like social media, video games, alcohol, you know, all this, like, there's problems. Um, but like, there's still the ideological struggle. And that is like, very, very key, I think, in my mind. It's a struggle to, you know, understand yourself. It's a struggle to be able to articulate how to deal with problems. Um, and how to connect these, like, dots and whatnot. But, you know, if I could just say, I was talking to Nuri and uh, Jeremiah about this last night, mm -hmm. you know, because, um, you know, we're all now aware that the black people gave humanity such a great thing during that period of the, the height of the black freedom movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it was, yeah. and it, it was great sacrifice, great discipline, you know, the fight for unity and all of that. I mean, and then of course it did not go without a counterattack from the ruling class. And it is, you know, it has been ruthless, but it's been ruthless in its subtlety. It's not even, you know, they created a new normal that is not the same as what the normal was during the fight for freedom. And, you know, only, you know, when you listen to people like us talk, do you get a sense of it. And it was, it was magnificent. And you get a, you can see it. We, we mentioned names, of course, King and Malcolm X and Fannie Lou Hamer and just so many more. And of course, Muhammad Ali you know, and the music, uh, the art. Right. This was um, something almost the complete opposite of the way things are right now. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. all of that has been driven down and underground if it continues, if it still exists. Mm -hmm. And I know Catherine and I, Catherine Blunt and I, are always trying to gauge and figure out where are black people? What are they thinking? You know, where's their spirit? How do they see the world? It's a hard thing, you know, I ride public transportation and I'm always looking at people, trying to gauge, you know? Uh, the youth are more difficult for me to, to gauge. I just don't know where they are. You know, um, and I was saying to Nuri and um, and Jeremiah, because I'm a boxing fan, and, you know, when you get into those later rounds, do you have enough? Do you have enough in you for two more rounds? Mm -hmm. You know, and in a lot of ways, that's the black situation right now. You know, has it been too much? 
or do we have something left? Mm -hmm. Because if we get in the mix of this crisis, it shifts everything. Believe me, it is a strategic thing. In other words, the, the whole configuration of political, social, cultural forces, discourses, and everything would alter. Right, right, right. But the question is, do we have two more rounds? I, I like how you use it. I like what you, when you say it boxes, yeah. Like Can we, I ask you a question, yeah. Derek? Is that a fair way to and, and Yvonne, you know what I'm saying? Do yeah. we have it yeah. to fight yeah. one more battle? Yeah. Because I mean the last one took a lot. Yeah. And then the attack upon us over the, these past forty years, I can, I mean, the, the shutdown of public education, the foisting upon us of of music that really is not ours. This is not the and, and as we said, me and uh, me and Kathy talk about this. You know what we call hip hop is closer to pop art and Andy Warhol mm -hmm. than it is to the blues. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? There's not a a, a freedom dynamic there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so and you know this leadership that we have this broke down corrupt mm -hmm. leadership. So do the masses have it to rise up and assert who we are? And that, that's, I mean, is that fair to say, um, uh, Derek and, and Yvonne? So I, was, I was just saying that it was appropriate that she used boxing, mm -hmm. which I sit back and watch boxing like you do. Yeah. And it's, it's basically like, it's this art form that I've learned about unboxing. I like to be in the ring all, every day, mm -hmm. but it's this form of boxing that I'm not saying that black people do it, but we have perfected it so that you could be, you can, you can see the perfection from these boxers, and they caricature sometimes perfection too. And and if I want to translate it into China, I'm usually looking at I'm studying Chinese boxers. But it's, it's still in their character, not Hollywood right now. It's, it's, it's what they have learned and applied through their experiences in this boxing or styles of art. Not the self-defense. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the rightful position for the boxer to see himself in ring gentlemanship. Things you learn about them, you know, like this. And this is something that we have to learn a little bit Let about. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Do you think we, black folk, have two more rounds? Can can we? Do you think we have it in us right now? <laughs> I meant you know Alan. I meant Alan. I'm saying that we can go to 15, and we might only did eight right now. So I'm not even saying that we're against the rules. Okay. Don't think that we all the time don't have you know some defense because this coming here right here shows that we can we can we can draw ourselves in this ring, like we situated it, and, and have that strength. We have to find that inner, and I find that listening to each of y'all, this is, this is this inner strength that boxers bring in the ninth or the twelfth, and they say, you know, can he go, you know, like that. You know, I ask myself, is it unfair 
to ask black people to give more again. You know, they have given so much. Can they, do we have more to give? And that's a question not just, that's a question of the broad masses of people. Right, because when you ask them, what do you want to give them? Could you say it one more time, Yvonne? Not even do we ask more, but do we want to get more? But tell me what you mean. I mean, just like you said, we've given up a lot. We've given, yeah. yeah. Do we have, I mean, it's, it's, because, you know, sometimes when I go around, even talking to people, you know, in the street, just running into people, and even just saying sometimes the way we behave. Yeah, right. Some of our behaviors signify, oh, fuck it, I don't care no more. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I'm saying? But I, I just, and I don't want to, you know, ask more of an oppressed people than they can give. Why should they do such heavy lifting you know, like uh, like Sarah Pinks is a very difficult question. I just I just put it in the course of a discussion to uh, to Nuri and uh, Jeremiah. You know that we have to understand that black folk are only human. You know, and that we gave a great deal, changed the country, but it didn't change it completely. You know. And can we do it again? Because if we can, it changes everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean that's what I'm saying. Like some, there's like, I I I feel what you're saying Mm -hmm. because it's like, and I see those attitudes too. Mm -hmm. Something has something else has to come into the mix to change up this how black people see the fight. Yeah. Or the struggle. Yeah. I really think so. And I mean, yes, it can be mentality changes, um, but it's just um, like, how do I say? Like, the, the, at least the struggle um, from the viewpoint of black people, from what I see, is, is complex uh-huh. and um, kind of uh, all surrounding. Type of situation. So it's like on all sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, so that's what I'm saying. Like, uh, but mm, yeah, if something else comes into the mix, or if there's something um, that Black people are able to connect to, um, and it's, it comes back down to ideological struggle and see how that will affect. You know, black people, if we bring more black people on with free school and things like that in the literal sense. Um, and, and then there's the long struggle, you know? Yeah. Uh, but but if something else comes into the mix, is realignment thing is yeah. is a point. Uh, it it kind of gets to Jake's point of the will of the people. Mm-hmm. You know, and they the ruling class has spared no effort to break the will. I don't say I don't say they've been successful, but they've spared no effort. I hear yeah. you. Yeah. But, I'm, but at the same side, I'm like, well, there's still always possibility and chance. No question. You know what I mean? No, I, I hear you. you. I hear you. But I'm just saying. Let, let, let like, Jake yeah. come in quickly, and yeah, then we're I'm gonna go. We have. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, for the but we have to. Uh, Jahan asked us to reannounce uh, the conference in India because. We did it before the live stream was completely on. So, 
Jake, and then we'll go to that, and then we'll go to the um, the uh, Winston Conference. Go ahead, Jake. I'll try to keep it brief. Okay. Um, I think there's there's like three I feel decisive factors. Um, and I think there's one um, thing that the, there's a piece that's necessary. Mm -hmm. So one the first thing that comes to my mind um, when it comes to like black people and can they make the sacrifices? Well, like what the sacrifice is already. Uh, James Baldwin, I think this was after this was after the the civil rights period. Mm -hmm. He talked about the one thing that black people have is our silence. Mm -hmm. We have our we have a quiet we, we can we can quietly assess and watch the situation, and and that's what's kind of happening. You know, we're we're in a because uh, you know what okay, well, where, where are black people gonna go? So there's like these different there's different like movements that are happening in the country. There's Black Lives Matter, which is is all nicks because they don't do anything for black people. They've destroyed our communities. Um, you know, in, in the name of black people. Um, there's uh, the 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 anti kind of critical race, the pro Trump movement, um, which has a stir more stirrings toward a, a, a type of democracy, but it's still not it's still not progressive. It's still not what we need. You know what I mean? Um, and then you know, there's different there's different Antifa, left, all these, but none of it is satisfying these these basic problems Absolutely. like of housing, like of poverty, yeah. like of this, you know we talk about gun violence. Mm -hmm. um, and I I feel the second uh, I'll come back to just to, just to remember the second uh, uh, um, decisive factor is chance. What you were talking about, Serafina, but I feel that the most important thing. Um, is uh, th that black people need is leadership. Mm -hmm. I and this is something you know um, uh, a coworker of mine, a young black man, he said you know we don't have there's no leaders. We don't have anyone to lead, lead us. But this is the thing. This is, and this is where leadership and chance comes in. See what happened in the black in the um, black freedom uh, in the Montgomery bus boycott was you know there was there wasn't there wasn't leadership. Um, in fact, Rosa Parks was just tired. She was tired of being, you know, of, of, of sitting down or sitting in the back, and she had a long day at work, and she didn't want to get up for any for a white man, you know, um, and 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 that was the dissatisfaction also of the people of, of of black people in the South, and that's how it just erupted. And then, but see what happened there was uh, also there was they, immediate leadership, immediate leadership, and the ideas, you know what I'm saying? It was like three. Prescott said it was the three things came together. Um, and so I, I feel what's necessary uh, and what black people need is for someone first to jump out, is to, is to jump out and, and, and stand, like you talk about the ideological struggle, is to stand up you know, and, 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 and speak. Because that silent majority, that, that is that, that right, right hook right in, uh, uh, in, the, in that seventh, seventh round, whatever. You know what I mean? The opponent's game tires, starts swinging at you, boom. That's that silent majority that, that has the power to so just like in Black Reconstruction, the, 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 the power that Black people have, the power that the working class has, has not gone away because it's, it's still in because the people still have agency. The people have made up. The people make up government. The people make up um, uh, 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 the masses. It's but it's a matter of you know how the leadership is the head. You know okay, well, where when am I gonna put this? Where am I gonna place this jab? Where am I gonna place this punch? And how am I gonna catch him under the chin? And, Send him back. How, how am I going to do that? And then, and then, that, and that the power, all power to the people. Yeah. The power comes in uh, when the people decide, like they did in Black Reconstruction, um, that this is this this, and this and that was chance. You know, that wasn't was a whole the whole that was the pe the people's decision. You mm -hmm. know, um, to 
uh, leave the uh, slave plantations. And once again, it's on, it's on, it's that, it's that uh, uh, balance between the leadership, or really three things: leadership, chance, um, and the and the people. You know, um, I feel that 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 you know, when when you have those pieces, and when you, when you can, and, and, and when it's directed against the condition that the, the whole people are facing, then then the will is it, it flows like a river. It's you know, past the dam, boom. And, you know what I mean? And you know, all I would say, Jay, is yes. But we have to, you know, we're looking at a real situation. We, let's just keep studying it, carefully studying. Mm -hmm. You know, and when I say study, not just statistics, and not primarily statistics, what we see among the people. We just don't know. We do know black people ain't going to church the way they used to. Church is a primary institution. We know black people don't vote that much, you know. <laughs> so I mean, but we, the youth, we want to know the youth more. What are they thinking? Where are they at? And so on. But we'll return to this. This, this, all of this discussion is a part of the Winston Conference. But uh, I'm going to ask Porba to reannounce the conference on uh, peace between India and China uh, in, in, in India uh, in a couple of weeks. So, Portaba. Okay, so this event, it's going to be uh, a three-day event. Uh, it has both in-person and performance. Uh, so the first part of the event is the screening of a movie called uh, Dr. Kotnis Ki Amar Kahani in Hindi. Which, is, uh, which was written by Khwaja Ahmed Abbas, and it is about the lives of this Indian doctor, uh, Dr. Kotnis, who went to China during the Japanese invasion of China. He was sent by the uh, Indian National Congress, um, and he, it's about his life and his sacrifice um, and solidarity with the Chinese people and how he decided to stay back there and... Uh, the point of this, uh, I think the movie really beautifully brings out the question of inter-civilizational unity between the Indian and the Chinese people. Mm -hmm. The second event is a panel discussion on the 24th of October, which is a Sunday. Uh, it is at 6 p.m. in India and 8.30 a.m. in Philadelphia. And the panel is titled... Um, India and China parallel but distinct struggles, distinct struggles for the liberation of dark humanity. Mm -hmm. um, the panel will have Meghna and uh, Raju and uh, Ramohan Rai, and uh, well, I I'll be moderating it, and so it will be a discussion about how the the anti-colonial struggles in India and China. Even though they had they diverged ideologically on a different on, on various different points, it they still had commonalities and were parallel struggles mm -hmm. in as much as they involved the masses and the peasantry, most importantly, both mm -hmm. in India and China. And it will be centered around the leadership of Gandhi in India and Mao in China and the commonalities between the leadership roles that they took. Uh, the 
third event is uh, is another panel discussion on the 31st of October. Uh, that's also a Sunday. It's again at 6 p.m. in India and 8:30 p.m. 8:30 uh, a.m. in the morning for uh, Philadelphia. And the panel is called "World System Collapse of the West and the Rise of China." The speakers would be uh, Sudhindra Kulkarni and Martin Jacks, and they would be commenting on the meaning and what we can learn from the current rise of China, and uh, I guess also about the Western response to the rise of China as a threat and what it can mean for Asia as well. Yeah, to sum up, that would be the event. Looking forward. You know, just for the live stream, I'll repeat what I said. This is very, very important. The fact that it comes, it uh, will take place in India uh, makes it so important because India and China are frontline states, so to speak, mm -hmm. in the future of Asia as a whole, mm -hmm. and of course in the fight for peace, mm -hmm. because right now there are high tensions between two nations which at a civilizational level have so much in common and whose freedom struggles have so much in common and as Derek mentioned, both were based upon the peasantry. Both discovered the revolutionary potential of the peasantry. Uh, it's just so much. And of course, it's obvious that the trajectory of India's economic development, if it is really to take off and be a broad-based thing, is going to look so similar to China's and, and so on and so forth. So um, from the free school, we're going to try to meet on the two Sundays here to be able to watch the videos, uh, the live streaming, I should say, of the conference. So is there any way or uh, that people, anything people should do uh, if they want more information of Portuba? So we posted the link in the comments, and then also I know Michelle was going to add it to the preschool Oh, good, good. Oh, let me ask you, hey, Alice, do we have any comments on the chat? We, yeah, we forgot about that. There were a couple. So one is from Yvonne saying, good morning. Veronica and from Greensboro, North Carolina, watching. Mm -hmm. Michelle had posted the article that we had discussed earlier today. Mm -hmm. Stephen Collier says, uh, good morning on this anniversary of the raid on Har Harbors Ferry by Captain John Brown, whose heroic purpose to arm the revolt for freedom and justice was initiated on the 16th of October in 1859. That's it. Okay, all right. Well, oh, hey, anybody? Okay, so we're going to move on. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. We're going to move on to the discussion of the Henry Winston Conference. So I'll turn it over to my worthy <laughs> colleague, Just <laughs> 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 a short update um, of the, I'm just pulling up. We, me and Doc met Monday and we talked about the layout of the conference. Um, thinking about like how, uh, 
you know, in the World Peace Movement, the question of military spending was as a cause of inflation was also like a point of our discussion. Um, but for Friday, um, we were kind of laying it out as starting with Doc, you know, saying something about Winston. And there's a uh, Du Bois writing or article essay essay when Winston gets out of prison, right? Um, so we would read that. Um, and then we sectioned the event, or like since the event on Friday would be kind of a biography of Winston's life, uh, we sectioned Winston's life off in three parts, starting from childhood to young manhood, you know, we're kind of thinking about it. Um, the second um, portion being Scottsboro, the Scottsboro case, to Winston's federal imprisonment. And then the third being the freedom from prison and uh, the world communist movement. Right. Um, I get, every time I see those three stages that we're seeing in his life, everybody get that? Just you want to say them one more time so everybody. We talk, we're trying to look at his life in three stages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But but go ahead. Uh, yeah, time? I guess. Um, so like childhood, meaning like him coming from the south, his family, him, uh, you know, I guess after the Great Depression, joining the Youth Communist League at a young age, um, and then. Uh, well, I can't really describe the Scottsboro case. Yeah, yeah. The Scottsboro was this international case of nine young black men oh, yeah, right. who, like Winston and others, were riding the rails, as they say. They were in boxcars, and they would go from city to city looking for work. Well, these nine were accused of rape, raping two young white women who were also riding in, in the freight cars. They didn't rape them, but the sheriff in this small Alabama town, when when they found, or the police, when they found these two white women in the same car, freight car, with these nine black youth, they accused the youth of raping the white women. They didn't rape them. In fact, one of the women, they were coerced to make that statement, but one later came forward and said, no, that's not true, we were coerced. But anyway, there was a national and international fight put up to save their lives, in other words, from the electric chair, and then to finally free them after many years in prison. So uh, we're saying Winston's life from birth and childhood in Mississippi to the Scottsboro case. And that includes Winston's having left home and been on the rails, going from place to place, looking for work, finally finding the unemployed movement and the Com Young Communist League and getting involved in the Scottsboro case. So that's one period of his life. And then, the Scottsboro to the federal then the Scottsboro case to his federal imprisonment, I think in 1955. He was in prison for six years for being a, quote, agent of a foreign government, which means being a leader of the Communist Party. While in prison, he loses his sight because of neglect. So he's released from prison in 1961. We have a third section, the 
And then that begins the third section. <laughs> okay. The third part is from his release from prison, which took an international effort and ultimately is because the Cuban revolution had seized some people that the Americans wanted free. So there was an exchange. Mm -hmm. And Winston was free. And he goes to the Soviet Union trying to get medical treatment to gain his sight back. A young uh, Soviet girl offered to give him her eyes. If, yeah. But they didn't have any you know, medical technology for that. He returns to the United States and resumes his role in the leadership of the Communist Party, becoming its chair, chairman in 1966, and, and then becoming a figure in the World Communist Movement, becoming friends, um, which I'll talk about when I read the call, mm -hmm. the draft of the call, yeah. uh, up till his death in 1986. Mm -hmm. So we're you know, kind of making those three. Yeah. Okay. yeah, OK, so that's a Friday. And then for that is Friday. Yep. On the Friday the 5th. And then Saturday, um, uh, it will go from 10 to 5. And it's between two things. One is like a panel, and then the other will be like a town hall. Yeah. Um, and the first panel discussion will be W.B. Du Bois and Lenin, Pan-Africa mm -hmm. and Pan-Asia in the Thought of Henry Winston. Mm-hmm. Um, from 10 to 1. And we were thinking about three papers, kind of, like titles of paper, uh, ideas about the paper. I don't know how to frame it, but the first one being Henry Winston and Ramesh Chandra and the current stage of imperialism. Um, and then China and Africa, Maoism and after Mao. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third being King and Winston, Civil Rights and That'll be the panel discussion. Yeah. And then lunch. And then uh, a town hall. Uh, a converse, like this topic is split up into two town halls from two to five. What is the future of, of young people, socialism or capitalism? Um, the first one being the crisis of young people is the crisis of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the second one will be uh, entitled The Fierce Urgency of Our Times. Will young people fight for socialism? And that will be Saturday. It's like jam-packed, but yeah. <laughs> maybe if you want to say anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah we, we're still working that out. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we want, we want to kind of get into the discussion. One, where are young black men? Yeah. This is, yeah. you know, yeah. What was the first one? Uh, the the yeah, that one's the crisis of young people is the crisis of uh, capitalism. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we were thinking, and we already had reached out to Minister uh, Gregory Mohammed, mm -hmm. and um, we want Derek on that pan on that discussion. We want, and we want Jacob too. We didn't say Derek. I, I just I just improvised Derek. But Jacob um, um, and Brandon Doe and maybe a couple of others, you know what I'm saying? But to discuss this question, 
uh, because this the submerged part of the population, the most submerged are black young men. They're submerged, they're buried in prisons, they're buried on the streets, like a, 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 a population of migrants that have no homes, you know, we want to know. And Gregory Mohammed is um, the head of the Nation of Islam's prison ministry. And he also, he himself was a prisoner. And he talked about how he chose a crime, the crime, life of crime. And he did, you know, so on and so forth. Although that was not the trajectory of his family, by the way. His brother's a bishop in, I think, the AME Church. But anyway, him, Jacob, Brandon Doe, and maybe a couple of others, I won't say their names, but um, to talk about this, uh, what is it like to be a young black man at this time? You know, and then, okay, the question. Then the fierce urgency, the fierce urgency of our times, will young people fight for socialism, which we are thinking, Catherine Blunt, yeah. Mary Provenny, yeah, yeah, yeah. and others. And others may, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then see this question okay. of will, because they, I, you know, I think we all agree. At least um, mm -hmm. Serafina and I agree. There's not hardly any future for young people under capitalism, especially for the young poor. That's what we're trying to get at. Right. Okay. Then Sunday. Oh dear. Yeah. Right. Um, movie the seventh from one to six, and it was, it's entitled "Art as a Revolutionary Force in the Struggle for Freedom." From one to three, we have it kind of laid out to be the ideological imperatives of art, from pop art to hip hop, which we're thinking of Cassie, Divya, and Michelle. I knew she got the um, to kind of speak on that, and then lunch from three to four, and uh, from four to six. Um, what becomes of art that does not fight for freedom? And possibly Zaki and I and others would uh, help with that. Um, but that's what we have so far for Sunday, but maybe I mean, just thinking about the conversation we had today, um, one piece that kind of stood out to me was just how we were talking about how much, like, the will of the people have been, it's just been attacked and then even just like the space for the natural discourse that a community should have around something like art. Like we normally aren't able to have it, but it's a really, really cool thing, not only on um, the day of Sunday, but then obviously also Saturday and, Saturday and Friday, but especially Sunday, just having the space for us all come together and talk about um, just work out a lot of these questions rather than just accept so many different imposed mm -hmm. ideas and ideas. So I just think that it'll be really, really mm -hmm. good to be able to, um, in this moment and context, be able to um, take many things apart and just have a conversation that is really, really good to lay out.
the role of art and culture as it is today, but also um, in all its potentialities. That was all I to say. No, yeah, I mean, because like, why go to the question of art mm -hmm. um, with the Winston Project? Mm -hmm. And it is to connect with the young people uh, in, in the sense of the fact of like, what is going on um, in the life worlds of people now? And um, like, how are they seeing the world? How are we seeing the world? Um, how, um, like, what is good? What is bad? What is ugly? What is, you know, like those kind of details. And when we know that, like, the propaganda from the ruling class dictates what is good, what is bad, etc. What is beautiful, true. Um, then we have to ask these questions of um, art. Where do the ideas of art come from, and why? And um, and I think Winston, like we were talking about, is not just him as like a person that has an example um, of leadership of like. Um, of a human being, but it's how, like, like how is he also able to see the world? Um, and that's through the revolutionary struggle. And when struggle is taken out of culture, it's taken out of the lives of young people, and that's a serious issue. Um, so then we assess the ideological problems in culture, like Afro-pessimism, where does hip hop come from, why? Um, you know, uh, post, uh, you know, the art from futurism. No, I said this, but like pop art. And, um, and, uh, there's another black art through the movement. Like and, and, we're black and movies. Mm -hmm. We want to oh, get into no. the movie Black Panther. We want to look at some of these developments mm -hmm. of Korean cinema, you know, which is a really complicated, but it's probably the best of bourgeois cinema. Mm -hmm in the world today, South Korean. <laughs> I mean, to say that it's the best of bourgeois is to say that it is, it, it imbibes all of the most decadent values of, of nihilism and pessimism. We saw it with the movie Parasite. We see it with this uh, series, what's it called? Squid Games. Squid Games. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, we see it with the movie uh, Black Panther. Yeah. And yeah, and this idea of Wakanda. And then the celebrity culture. And then yeah. celebrity culture. So we have a lot to pull together. I mean, Kathy, we got to meet more often. Yeah, we really do. Yeah, it's so much to talk It's so much, man. Because art is so decisive in the ideological struggle. Yeah. And, and youth see the world. I know social media is a big factor, but art, or what goes for art, and celebrity are such powerful forces. When we say celebrity, we're not just talking about Cardi B or that type. We're talking about magic, I mean, not who I'm talking about, LeBron James, mm -hmm. uh, sports, all of this, which obscures so much. So that's, so I guess Kathy and I'll be meeting very much for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, now, that had talked us into a whole lot of work, but um, yeah, we, it has to be done. But I, I just, if, if 
if you don't mind, yeah. I'd like to read the call. The this is just the draft of the call. And um, it's not complete, but it's almost complete. And I think, you know, uh, if there are no uh, fundamental dif differences, I guess uh, Seraphine and I can um, uh, kind of complete it on Monday when we meet. Uh, it's entitled, Henry Winston, His Vision for Freedom and Hope in Our Time. Henry Winston was born in 1911 in Mississippi, in the very shadow of the defeat of Black Reconstruction. The lives of Black folk at that time were not that different than during chattel slavery. They had no rights, worked land they could not own, and never rose above, above deep poverty. The working mass of black folk ultimately constituted a black proletariat, super exploited and racially oppressed. Many of Winston's relatives and neighbors had been slaves. His mother headed his family, which included two sisters. Escaping Mississippi, the family moved to Kansas City, Missouri. The poverty and racial oppression of Mississippi followed them forcing Winston to drop out of school and seek work by going on the road. Amid the collapse of the world capitalist economy and the start of the Great Depression in the 1930s, Winston found himself part of a generation of young people who were a stranded population, uneducated, unemployed, homeless, hungry, and without futures. They were a vast army of the unemployed. They traveled in freight cars, lived in hobo camps, and on the sides of railroad tracks. Of this vast army, many gave up, turned to crime and hopelessness. Winston found among youth like himself the unemployment movement and the unemployed councils that believed in fighting back rather than giving up. In this movement, Winston first met members of the Young Communist League and the Communist Party. He began to study politics, philosophy, and economics. He came to realize that there were few, if any, individual answers for the mass of impoverished and destitute youth, and that struggle was their sole hope. Winston learned life lessons in this early period that would be a compass for the rest of his life. He joined the Young Communist League, rising quickly to become its national organization secretary. He studied Marxism-Leninism in the Soviet Union at the Lenin School. Here he met communists and revolutionaries from around the world. He saw that the revolutionary process was a world process, and the class struggle in the U U.S. was part of a vaster struggle that included the anti-colonial struggles in Africa, India, and China. He learned that the black struggle was linked to the movement of the darker peoples around the world. More than a decade before Winston arrived at the Lenin School, figures like Jadu, Deng Xiaoping, and Zhou Enlai, leaders of the Chinese Revolution, Ho Chi Minh of Vietnam, as well as revolutionaries from Haiti, South Africa, and Egypt had attended. 
In the throes of the economic collapse, Winston concluded that to prevent another such crisis and to save the young generation from complete ruin, the system of capitalism had to be replaced by socialism. He believed reforms, like many of those enacted by the Roosevelt administration, were significant, but could not solve the general and intensifying crisis of capitalism. He saw the fight as two-sided, for radical democratic political and economic reforms and for socialism. This was not an academic matter to be uh, for, for intellectuals. To be achieved, an alliance of the multiracial working class and the black freedom struggle was necessary. For him, the working class could not effectively fight for itself and its class interests if it could not overcome all the elements of ruling class ideology which infected its ranks, first and foremost, white supremacy. In this regard, he saw the rise of the Congress of Industrial Organizations and the organizing into unions of unorganized workers in the automobile, steel, mining, shipping, electrical, and transportation industry based on the principles of black and white united fight as an important step forward. But the working class must fight all instances of racist terror against black workers and black people. In the fight against racism, Winston joined the struggle for the freedom of the Scottsboro Boys. The nine black youth charged with raping two white girls on a freight train. The fight was to save them from being executed and ultimately to win their freedom. This became an international campaign in the fight against U.S. racism and for the rights of black folk. They were saved from execution, but spent long years in prison. For the rest of his life, Winston fought for the freedom of political prisoners, highlighted by his leading the struggle to free Angela Davis. <coughs> Winston joined the Council on African Affairs, connecting as he, as he would throughout his life, black freedom with African independence. Winston rose quickly in the Communist Party and was elected to the Central Committee. The rise of fascism as a world movement and a threat to democracy and socialism found Winston becoming a fighter against fascism in Europe and in the US. He supported the democratic forces in Spain and defended the Soviet Union when it was attacked by Hitler. After Japan's attack upon Pearl Harbor, Winston joined the US Navy, a completely racist and segregated institution like all the armed forces. He, like the Communist Party and most progressives, would be tested after the end of World War II. The U.S. rose to be the dominant economic and military power in the world, committed to restoring the global capitalist system, including a new form of colonialism in Asia and Africa. This included a Cold War with the Soviet Union, the buildup of nuclear weapons, war in Korea, and attacks upon democratic rights at home. At the same time, a movement from within the Communist Party arose to turn it into an association of leftists and essentially the left wing of the Democratic Party, or something like the Democratic Socialist of America today, rather than a unique, revolutionary, and independent political party. Winston and, other, and others successfully resisted this. However, 
Figures like W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, and Winston were soon targeted by the U.S. government as foreign agents because of their opposition to nuclear weapons and colonialism, especially in Africa. Winston was indicted and convicted and sentenced to serve six years in federal prison. He lost his sight in, there in prison due to medical neglect. In prison, Winston restudies W.E.B. Du Bois's writings on race, democracy, and pan-Africanism. This study would define his theoretical practice for the rest of his life. His search for the essence of the U.S. revolutionary process and its connection to the world's anti-colonial and revolutionary struggles drew, drew him deeper into Du Bois's writing. He must have certainly been drawn to the chapter in Black Reconstruction in America on the dictatorship of the black proletariat in Mississippi, the state of his birth. Or how Du Bois conceptualized the African slaves as a proletariat. Certainly like Du Bois, Winston viewed the colonization and neo-colonization of Africa as central to the enormous profits of the, of the West's multi-monopolistic financial and industrial corporations and the, and the stability of the capitalist world system. He viewed Pan-Africanism in Du Bois's articulation as part of the world's struggle against imperialism. Upon his release from prison, Winston threw himself completely into the struggle, rising to be the chairman of the Communist Party and a respected figure in the world communist movement. He viewed the world communist movement as the leading uh, force for peace and democracy on a world scale. He sought to link the world communist movement to the broader struggles, broader struggles, drawing him to the World Peace Council and its leader, Ramesh Chandra. Winston theorized the special position of the black working class in the overall fight for democracy, peace, and socialism as the centrality of the black freedom movement. The concept of centrality meant that the black freedom movement must be viewed as connected to every progressive and radical current of struggle in the U.S. This concept is deeply embedded in Du Bois's historical and sociological writing. For Winston, rather than a separate struggle, properly understood, the Black Freedom Movement was a strategic component of the revolutionary and democratic processes in the U.S. For him, it stood alongside the class struggle in importance to understanding the essence of the revolutionary process. Winston fought ideologically against all efforts to diminish the historic role of the, of the black people in the U.S. or the African anti-colonial struggle. He was committed to building the black left within the black movement and within the general struggle in the U.S. As for Africa, he was particularly concerned with communist parties and left radical movements in Africa. For instance, he had, a particularly, he had particularly close ties to the communist parties of, of the Sudan and South Africa. He also had close ties to the African National Congress of South Africa and revolutionary democratic parties in Guinea, the People's Republic of the Congo, and 
Cape Verde, and Guinea-Bissau. He was particularly close to the Cuban Revolution and its paramount leader, Fidel Castro. Henry Winston's vision is anchored to his effort to scientifically understand the unique essence of the revolutionary process in the United States. It was his view that such an understanding could ground a practice of unity and struggle against the monopoly capitalist ruling class. This effort found him joining communist theory to Du Boisian theory. His theoretical discoveries ultimately constitute a new synthesis which advances a practice of unity and struggle in our time. Winston is, a, is an important uh, contributor uh, to the struggle for peace, democracy, and socialism. In two books, Strategy for a Black Agenda and Race, Class, and Black Liberation, and many essays and speeches, we witness him, work, him working out this new theoretical synthesis. The Saturday Free School organizes this three-day symposium to honor and study the vision of Henry Winston and to further develop that vision. In this moment of deep crisis for the youth and people, the struggle for ideological clarity is critical. What Henry Winston fought to achieve is now passed on to a new generation, a generation that can spare no effort to know the world in order that it might be changed. So it's, it's going to be something else at the end there. Uh, Serafina and I, um, we had a discussion, and we want uh, to end um, with this idea of a radical revolution of values as a condition for a new stage of struggle and that the radical revolution of values must include a, a rebirth of a people's culture of struggle, you know. So we want to get that at the end. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what we discussed. Yeah, yeah. So if, I mean, are there any questions or comments? I mean, if it fits, you know, the spirit of the group, I mean, we'll go ahead with it. I think the more I mean I'm just learning more about Henry Winston as we go along I feel like I have yet to I need to also catch up on some reading but there's so many it, it's good to be very upfront about who is Henry Winston and have like get to know him over the course of this call and just say he was a you know this beloved figure that we should all know in our lives and then I think it is it, it is very powerful that we can come into play and to have that as we enter through you know three different days of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. You articulated very well. I like the way you put it. Yeah, yeah. I mean and, and as you say, a beloved figure. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say even a figure to be loved. To be known, to be respected, and um, his whole life he was a target of a very vicious ruling class, and then 
his imprisonment. He didn't commit a crime, had never committed a crime. And he does six years in prison, loses his sight, but not, as you say, didn't lose his vision or his, uh, Jake, his will to fight, his will. And um, we want to just explore, you know, this synthesis of communist theory and Du Bois and, and so on and so forth. Well, if uh, any uh, any questions about the call or anything? Oh, yeah, go ahead, Jay. I would say briefly, we're out of time. Um, Henry Winston, I mean, it's very good that we're honoring him. Um, and it's something, I mean, um, it's not a figure that the ruling class and, uh, very easily can distort because he was so, uh, through his life and through his work, is so. Uh, direct uh, yeah. with uh, where he stood. And that's what Jeremiah said, the same thing, so clear mm -hmm. in his words and, you know, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh go, go ahead, Jeremiah. Well, I think to Jake's point, too, um, you know, like like the left, they like to uh, promote certain black radical figures like C.L.R. James, mm -hmm. Du Bois sometimes. Um, there's even like some yeah, like some black communists that they, Gerald Horn, definitely in this current moment. Um, but yeah, it's very true. You don't hear anything about uh, Henry Winston, um, especially, which is especially remarkable given how central he was uh, to the world communist movement. So yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. And really central to the organization yeah. of the Communist Party yeah. in this country. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, holding a organization like that together is no small feat. Mm -hmm. And it's not just organization, it's also the theoretical, ideological thing. And, you know, as I've said before, this synthesizing of Du Bois and communist theory, which is really Leninism, mm -hmm. that he affected, was never fully understood in the Communist Party. It was an advance. It's not that people, you know, didn't want to. It's just that that kind of understanding of the black struggle was not, it just doesn't come like, quote, normally or naturally. And so it was never fully embraced uh, by the Communist Party, although he was a revered figure and a highly respected figure uh, by people who are much better known than him, such as William L. Patterson, such as Angela Davis, uh, and so on. Uh, but he was one of those people who was carrying out the heavy lifting, mm -hmm. you know, every day yeah. coming to work, every day uh, making sure that funds were raised, that the organization was functioning properly. And just like you said, you telling me about Kim Il-sung traveling around to factories or, or small farming communities, that's the way Winston would do. To know everybody or as many people in the Communist Party that he could know personally, you know? And to know even about small things about their lives, when their baby was born or when they were sick or whatever. 
So he was that kind of leader, but um, he just doesn't fit. You know, no revolutionary leader fits the postmodernist thing. They don't fit it. You know, so I, I would I would agree with you. Um, so and just like uh, Kathy said, you know, you, it's hard to go forward without knowing people like this. You know, so. Oh, go, go ahead, Derek. Yeah, um, Lyndon, Lyndon was maybe one of the most first important body of work that I ever had a gleam at in the beginning. And I'm in high school. It's not easy trying to every day survive with some level of like I begin to know who this leader is and how 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 effective his type of talking was that it interacted with me for my entire lifetime that's living every day. And it's never like, I'm, I've always been acquainted with hearing his name, but not it's not just hearing that. You know, his ideas was resounding to me. So if I said something about Lyndon maybe 50 years ago, the person was startled because they, they might have heard about Russia, but they don't have any social ideas. You know, what hardship of children without shoes. Yeah. Things that I've learned about Lyndon, like things that he would mention these small, incredible burdens placed on small kids and his way of talking to the people and in in where they lived at. And they were under oppression, oppression, you know, on that kind of level like that. So it's important to keep these little um, factors, Lennon and Wilson, uh, keep all these people together. That Lennon and Du Bois synthesis that Winston was working on. This is how, because see, you know, just to say Marx, 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 you know, okay, uh, you can do that in your graduate seminar. You're not concerned with changing the world, just talking, right. you know. Right. But once you want to get that essence of the U.S. revolutionary thought, just like what we're trying to do, yeah. where are the masses? What are they thinking? What are they thinking? See, that Du Bois and thing, and just like um, we keep going back to Baldwin in some way, that phenomenology. And how does all of that, how can all of that be deployed to understanding the, the logic of, of, of radical social change? And, and bringing, um, I, I couldn't um, bring um, Korea, Korea up the way my experiences is with Korea, because I, I had martial teacher from Korea, yeah. but also, Kim Tsung was like like Lennon. I was hearing what he said. It wasn't like um, Kim Tsung wasn't so far from me in my experience. Yeah. As close as as close as Mao was, all those people were dominant kind of thinkers, and, and not just. I was I'm an artist, and I can feel art like that. And they always still spoke to art, creative people, people working in gardens and farmers. And, <laughs> People that had to make bridles for for, um, for cattle, just stuff that we have to be in the, with the people in those in those kind of country settings. You know, we have to make this the country. That's right. And we translate country for me. I'm a landscape painter. I'm an art of the people from painting, taking photos, seeing people where they really live at, and and, and how knee deep it is for us to try to walk through with them. You know, to be like that and be a, to be an artist. To be an artist and revolutionary painter, and 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 Lennon was a, a is one of the spokespeople for this 
kind of loopy. Well, Serafina has to go to work, so we have to get out of here. <laughs> so I want to thank everybody, and we'll be here next week. And we, and then next Sunday, we'll try to be here for the uh, conference in India. Yeah.